This is Diaknas, A Cop's Calling, Season 3, Episode 3. And on this episode, I kick up the dust with retired NYPD Lieutenant Special Assignment, Eric Dim. Weaver, and on this podcast, I give cops a seat at my table to talk about their careers and push back against the negative narrative about the police. Our press loves to highlight negative news stories about officers who get complaints, lawsuits, and investigations against them. What's often missed in these stories is that each complaint, each lawsuit, and each investigation contains specific facts that are often overlooked. And usually the main point of that story is to draw a conclusion that the officer is a garbage cop without providing full context of all the details. My guest on this episode, retired NYPD Lieutenant Special Assignment, Eric Dim, has been labeled the most complained about cop in the NYPD. A lot of people believe he's a bad cop simply based on the amount of complaints he's received. You've heard it from me, and now you're going to hear it from him, that just because a cop is sued, complained about or investigated does not immediately mean he's a bad cop. Eric talks to me about his career, leadership, and the Citizen Complaint Review Board in New York. After our conversation, I also have a brand new Cue the Dip segment with gut-wrenching radio recording from an officer who survived being shot right here in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia PD to be exact. And then I close out the episode talking about the author and creator of Truth. Buckle up for a great episode. My guest on this episode is retired NYPD Lieutenant Special Assignment Eric Dim. He is a decorated NYPD officer serving on that department for nearly 19 years before using his military time as a Marine to retire early. However, many don't know his full story, instead choosing to focus on the fact that he's been labeled the most complained about cop in the NYPD. In addition, he co-hosts New York's finest retired and unfiltered podcast alongside my season two guest, John McCarry. Eric is here to talk about his career, officer discipline, the Citizen Complaint Review Board in New York and why cops uh, with lots of complaints doesn't always equate to being a bad cop or a garbage cop. Uh, Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate being here. I love to speak about law enforcement. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> you being here. It's uh, We're on like take 20 of this. We've been having all types of uh, uh, problems with our our internet and whatever, but we're, we're here. I'm glad you're here. Um, you. right, off, right off the top, just want to congratulate you on uh, New York's finest retired and unfiltered podcast. You and John are really killing it over there. Um, you guys are unafraid to go after New York um, brass city hall um, and really just put a different, a different feel out there. Um, some real life boots on the ground guys that did the job um, and, and adding, adding to that conversation. I've, I've, I really appreciate what you guys are putting out. That, like, like I said, thank you for the opportunity. It's been a hell of a ride, uh, especially teaming up with John. We've been kind of like a yin and yang. I think we've been rolling off each other, and uh, it's been awesome. And put out some good content. I, I I enjoy watching myself. Yeah, yeah. And John's real funny. He's a, like a real passionate guy. Had him on last season, and uh, it's obvious that you know how to push his buttons. So I love I love the banter. I love you pushing his buttons and getting him going about some things. That's always cool to hear. Uh, sometimes I I can't help it. I'm cracking up myself. I have to like kind of like slow it down. I, just, I <laughs> and afterwards, I, sometimes I watch it. I just I'm just crack it up because I know there's a couple keywords just set them off and get fired up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It it comes through. You guys are doing a great job. Really glad Thank to you. have you here. 
Um, you know, obviously want to get into talking about leadership, um, you know, the complaints uh, that you received and, and um, you know, just just talking about why, you know, why getting a complaint as a police officer doesn't mean you're a bad cop. Uh, but before we get all into all that, I, I kind of want to go back to the beginning, just find out where you grew up, your neighborhood, your family, uh, what that was like. Well, it's actually pretty interesting. So I actually was born in Houston, Texas uh, at the time. In the 70s, the economy had tanked in New York. So my father and my family, they had relocated to Texas. He was in the oil business, working for sick oil company. So at that time, the, uh, the economy was doing better there. So he had an opportunity. He made the move. But at the early age of four, my parents, parents had returned back to where their roots were, back to New York. So I grew up in Staten Island, Brooklyn. And because of the transitioning, and we didn't have generational wealth passed on in the, in the tides of the term of the economy, we grew up poor. Well, we grew up happy. It was, it was great growing up in New York City. I mean, I didn't even know it was poor. My, my bike was my brother's bike. My clothes were his clothes. Everything was a hand-me-down. But it was diverse. It was rough and tumble. It was a great opportunity to grow up in New York. I enjoyed it. It was great being a New York City kid. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. And, and did, you, did you want to, did you know at an early age you wanted to get into the NYPD or police work? Or did that come later in life once you joined the Marines? Good question. That actually came later on in life. I had no aspirations. I never saw myself as being a cop. I wanted to be a lifelong Marine. I wanted to be a JAG officer, which means being a lawyer in the Marines. But my father had made me take the test in 1999. He gave me the application. I took the test for the police department. And I never saw the opportunity that was there. I wanted to please my father, obviously. So, But upon my return from Iraq, from my tour of duty, I had a couple months left that my test for the NYPD would expire. They were good for five years. So at that time, I discussed with my father. I said, you know what? You served your country already. Why don't you take this opportunity and serve your city? So that was the way I embarked on my career in the police department. Nice. Now, were you over in Iraq after 9-11 or right before it? Or I guess it would have probably been I, right after. It was actually afterwards. I went for the, uh, the first invasion, which was Operation Iraqi Freedom 1, uh, January 2003. That's when I deployed to Iraq. Okay. Wow. Um, and what do you think are some of the most important lessons you learned out of the Marines um, that you were able to bring back to you and then carry over into your career with NYPD? Well, I'm a big, big fan of the Marine Corps. I love the Marine Corps. It's dear to me. I have tattoos about the Marine Corps. Uh, so there's so much I can go on for days talking about this. But if we just uh, wrap it up into a nutshell, I can say this. Brotherhood, camaraderie, and leadership. Those are the best takeaways that I have that continue on from the Marine Corps into my everyday life into my career, just who I am as a man, these things I learned and uh, these are aspirations that I will continue to carry as, as traits. Now, the brotherhood, camaraderie, leadership, are those all things that then kind of drew you into law enforcement? Because you find those things within law enforcement, especially on, especially on specialty units uh, where you're working with some of the best cops, in my opinion, are on these specialty units, uh, some of the most aggressive uh, guys that really want to get after the criminal element. Um, there, there's a great deal of leadership needed in units like that. There's a great deal of camaraderie that comes in in units like that and brotherhood. Did that kind of draw you to the job then? Well, at that point, once I, as I said before, I had no aspiration to be a cop. But once immediately went, I went to the police academy, I saw the opportunity to make the transition. It was a paramilitary organization, not as strict or as structural as the Marine Corps or the other branches, but it did have a similar structure, had a rank structure, had a hierarchy, and it did have 
opportunities to be in different units. And so immediately I saw the opportunity that I could transition the leadership skills I garnered in the Marine Corps. So immediately, when, once I was a student or candidate in the police academy, I was selected to be the company sergeant, which means I was a leader amongst the other candidates. So I had an opportunity to be a mentor to fellow candidates that we were going through the school or the police academy to become police officers. And I don't say cops because cops is earned and that, that comes all the time. But to become police officers, I was a leader amongst my fellow candidates. So uh, real interesting that you say that. Can you can you just give your distinction between becoming a police officer and being a cop? Like, what does that mean to you? <laughs> I talk about this constantly, podcast, text. I've been so vocal about this and adamant about it throughout my entire career. And everyone that gets on the job that passes the police academy is a police officer. You wear a uniform and you go to work and uh, you are wearing that suit. And that's why I always talk about that's the, the, the differential or the dichotomy between a security guard and a cop. It's that shield that we bear on our chest. And that shield is what gives us the right to do intrusive police work. A security guard observes, witness, and they report. But a police officer who eventually becomes a cop is someone that's intrusive, engages the community, encounters potential subjects, persons of interest, by utilizing the court case, which I love to talk about, is people versus the board. People versus the board, which is the levels of intrusion, which is ultimately uh, level one, two, three, and four, which level four is probable cause. Everyone knows what that is. That's when you make an arrest. But it's the other encounters that make a cop. It's understanding that when you have the right to detain someone, that may lead to an arrest, detain a potential sus suspect, or you have you utilize the other levels, which are basically just being nosy, being intrusive, asking questions, elicit, trying to elicit a an incriminating, uh, incriminating response that helps you get to an arrest. The ultimate goal for a cop should be making arrest because arrests lead to more information and information leads to more arrest ultimately so that we can prosecute the bad guys in the street that hurt the good citizens in different communities. So yeah. that's definitely, I think it's important to understand it's an honor to become a cop. Everyone wears a uniform to be a police officer. We start to utilize that intrusive police work and you use those observation skills, the trained eye with your boots on the ground. That's a cop. Yeah. And I think you touch on something really important in that response, uh, which I appreciated. And that is, you know, one thing that I've talked a lot about on uh, the podcast here is just this idea that I think many agencies are losing focus on the mission. I mean, the mission of law enforcement is in its name, law enforcement. And, and we're doing all these like special things. We're more, you know, more interested on social media likes. And we, we're, we're, we're trying to get people to like us. Well, that's not the mission. I mean, we want people to like us, obviously, and we, we want to serve the community. Uh, and, but we want the the right people to like us. And those people engaged in crime, like you said, like th that's an intrusion. Good cops are um, intrusive and, and dealing with people like that and, and, and making those contacts on a daily basis. I agree with you. I think the first most important element is that first police departments throughout the country and the men and women that bear the uniforms should be respected. And from respect, we will correlate to being liked and loved. But I think we have to be respected first. And if we're going to pander to the community in order to be liked first, well, then we, we may as well not be respected. They may like us because they may be able to take advantage. May be, they may think that they can get over on the police officers. But I think the foundation, the bedrock, has to be respect first. 
and then ultimately like and and, and we can't necessarily we can, I, I, I say this. I, I want to give this correlation. So I, you probably definitely understand this, Anthony. We all have family members. And sometimes this happens in divorce with people. People love each other. You may you love your mother, your father, your brother, sister, cousins. But that doesn't mean you like every one of them. There's a different thing. You can, you can, I think people, they get divorced in many cases. They love each other, but they don't necessarily like each other. So I think people have to respect us first. And they have to actually love us. And, and that means that they won't necessarily like us because we're not going to appease everything that they want. We're going to make arrests. We may write summonses that they don't like, but they should love us because ultimately it comes from a good place. So that's, that's my correlation. So I, I, I think we have to stop with this pandering of giving out ice cream and want to take pictures that we're, we're, we're giving up who we are. And that's who we are. You said it, law enforcement. Until the day we walk around with a gun belt, that doesn't have handcuffs on it, well, that's our responsibility. Ultimate mission is to put people in handcuffs so that we get information to put more people in handcuffs so that we can prosecute them. If that should be infectious to the communities so that if there's anyone on the cusp of committing crime, they see that, and that should create the mindset for them that, you know what, if I do cross that line and I do become a perpetrator, I'm going to end up in jail as well. But we're yeah. losing them. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, it's such, we are losing it. Um, and it's super frustrating to me because, um, the, as a police officer and the way I handled my career is I want, I, I wanted the right people to hate me and the right people to like me and the people in my neighborhoods that, you know, were law abiding citizens that were doing the right thing. I, I wanted them to like me, but the, the guys that were, you know, on the corners all hours of the night, um, slinging guns and drugs. I wanted them to hate me. Um, that, that was one of my goals as a, as a police officer. And, and, and towards the end of my career, I just felt like they didn't want guys like that anymore. They, they didn't want that, that level of aggressiveness or like you said, intrusiveness. Um, and I'm sure you felt that towards the end of your career as well. Well, absolutely. I, I think that we lost sight of it. And I, I, that's why I, I, I volunteered a good portion of my time to the Explorer Coordinator Program. So I worked at PSA 7 in the South Bronx. And I, I, I volunteered a lot of time to Explorers. I would teach them self-defense, situation awareness. And I became a, a father figure to many of these kids, a mentor. And they would talk to me. And sometimes I would ask them, when they were new to the program, what is your interpretation of a good cop? And we lost sight of it because many of these kids would say, oh, you know, one that plays basketball with you, are the ones that give out food or jackets. And I say, that is, that is a nice gesture. Those are good gestures. That doesn't make someone a good cop. And I think a good cop may very well be someone that just makes arrests. Why? Because those arrests are helping your community. That should be the ultimate basis for a cop is keeping people safe. That's how we serve the public. Are there other facets to serve the public? Yes. That's why we have programs. Kids should go out there and play basketball. We have social programs, but we have a gun belt for mission and purpose. Those tools need to be utilized. Handcuffs are a necessary tool. Those, I, I, sometimes I use the correlation. It's kind of funny. I think people find it insensitive, but it's the reality. And I would sometimes tell my cops, you have to see yourself as you work at FedEx. And when you, when you grab someone that is a person of interest and you put them in handcuffs, you're 
delivering that package to court. It's not you have to emotionally detach yourself. It's not your job to interpret. And that's where I think we're losing these district attorneys. It's not your job to interpret should this person should be rehabilitated by social programs or by jail time. That's for the people that decide at court. That's why the court is supposed to represent our people. The people are supposed to make decisions by voting how they want the public to be rehabilitated. That's for the people to decide. So that's why I would say sometimes we are FedEx. We take the package, we bring the package to court, let them decide. And I think that's what a good cop does. A good cop makes arrest. Yeah, and a good cop helps people. Sometimes it can be helping an older lady walk across the street. It could be helping someone in a wheelchair. It can be helping someone carry their groceries. Groceries. These are gestures that should be done by cops. But what makes a good cop is by doing intrusive police work. That's what separates that shield bared on a chest from a security guard. If right. everyone just observes, witness, and reports, I think we're losing the ability for a police department to really curb crime. The yeah. shield in itself, just observe report, displaces crime. It's intrusive police work that curbs crime. Yeah. And, and again, I think you're just touching on a really important point that, you know, some of these DAs that are in office and, and again, some law enforcement agencies are, are, don't view themselves anymore as law enforcement agencies or an arm of the government that enforces the law. They view themselves as activists. And so you have these agencies and you have these DAs instead of, like you said, yep. just enforcing the law, they're, they're trying to just make those decisions. Like you said, that a, a judge should make, a jury should make, you know, uh, voters should make such a valid point. I, I really appreciate that point. Um, uh, thank you. I, yeah. I feel strongly about this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So just, uh, you know, we got off there on our, our rabbit's trail, which was awesome. But when you first started in the NYPD, um, as like a brand new rookie on the street, what was, what was the most surprising or shocking thing to you as a brand new officer on the job? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, we go so many facets, but it, it was shocking to me, even at the time that the state for police, uh, and obviously in, uh, in the culture and some, and some of the neighborhoods I worked into, and, and you learn that the disdain for police or the disdain from authority is taught. In families, and that's why I say it's so important that we have a sense of community. And sometimes I would see mothers or even fathers walking with their kids, and we would approach to have a conversation, play with the kid because we, everyone loves kids. We all have kids. We're from the community ourselves. And some parents would say, "Stay away from him. You know that cop's going to lock you up one day. They're bad." Uh, so to see that disdain for police, it was it was really an eye opener because I thought I thought it was kind of mystical that wow, I'm getting on the job. I'm going to help people, and people are going to see that. They're going to know that Eric Dim is a good person. And he wants to help people. But they didn't see Eric Dim. They saw a police officer, a cop in uniform, even out of uniform. They just saw a representative of local government, someone that's trying to take their family away, trying to take food away from the table if they, if they were in potentially that type of element. So that was, that was an eye-opener. You know? And to this day, I even still feel that way because when I had the amount of charges from the Civilian Complaint Review Board, I sat there in my office numerous times. If you watch my podcast, you probably heard me talk about this. And I always said, how did I get here? How did I become the bad guy? It, it's really hard to see. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, there, it, I saw that a lot in my career, too. Just parents, like, basically indoctrinating their kids that the police were the bad guys. Um, and 
and and really what it does is it creates this mentality then where uh content of character is lowered and more important is um you know this victimhood status which we see in our culture but um yeah that i i always hated that i always hated when i went to a call i'm dealing with people and then i had parents passing me on the street or at the call telling their kids like hey if you don't behave i'm gonna arrest you sometimes i would address it i'd be like ma'am your job is to discipline your own child um, and provide consequences for your own child. I'm not going to come and arrest them for disobeying you. Don't tell your kid that. Um, a lot of times it, it just fell in deaf ears. I, I, towards the end of my career, I didn't even bother addressing it anymore. But yeah, it, it, was, one of, it, it was a surprising factor um, to just be hated just because of the uniform you, you wore. It's disheartening because, I mean, these are kids. And kids, kids don't know. Kids are taught. My kids, my kids don't know the difference between black and white. So I, that's why I know everything is taught to our children and they grow a mindset and we affect them. We are infectious, could be positive, could be negative. And these parents, when they were doing that, they don't even realize it. I think they think it's coming from a place of love, but they're hurting their kids. Give your kids an opportunity to make their own assessment. Give them a chance to love the police because the police may be there in turn to save them one day or help them. And unfortunately, putting someone in handcuffs is also can be love and a, 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 it could be helping them. You know, sometimes the sometimes I, I, I this wasn't my line of work, but I did see it. Sometimes a drunk driver getting arrested is the best thing that happened to him or her. The love from that cop placing them in handcuffs potentially could stop them from having alcohol problems. Could stop it. God forbid, hitting someone, killing a whole family. Sometimes put, placing someone in handcuffs is the best thing to happen to them. There's a lot of good that comes out of bed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just recently, um, the, the guys that I worked with at the end of my career um, in Lancaster City, uh, we were you know, on a vice unit type vice unit, and they just had a, a lady emailed one of them and told them, hey, the, your arrest of me and my boyfriend was huge because we've now been clean for two years um, and we're doing well and we're working. And those are the stories that you never hear. You yes. know, those, you know, that arresting someone is, is such a negative thing when in reality, like you said, it can be a positive thing. And now we see now we see with this bail reform and stuff and these criminals just a rotating door. We see some of these guys getting out of prison too early. They shouldn't be out of prison. And then they they end up becoming victims of crime and even murder themselves. They they become homicide victims. And so I'm saying you you the the the. The system is there. The justice system is there, not primarily to to protect the law-abiding citizens, but there's also protection in there for people who are engaged in risky behavior that may actually help them, save them, get them on a different road. I absolutely, I agree, and I think that sometimes what people don't understand—that's why we need to educate our kids in schools. We need to restructure. Sometimes say we need we need to restructure the programs. Uh, of what we teach. Well, I always say kids need to learn financial planning, something that doesn't go on in school. But we also need to teach in school some type of criminal justice program. And what kids don't understand is that, and I, and that's why I like to look at things from different point of views. We always have to have an open mind. And, and I say to myself, you know, I know how I feel as a police officer, but if I was some a, a member of the community not living as a police officer and, and and, and if I viewed the police, if I had a disdain from the police, is it possible it's coming from a good place? So I can understand that because in some cases, and, and that's why I think we need to look at it, it's 
there's a dichotomy between what happens on the street when police officers put people in handcuffs, but what actually happens in court. So that's why people have to understand it's a different entity. When a police officer puts you in handcuffs, it's not to put you away forever. That's something that we need to take up with what's going on in the court system. You know, and that's why I do think this bail reform had gone too far and swung too far to the left. There are some intricacies that need to be worked out. Yes, it's unfair if you're poor and you don't get the same uh, chance to fight a case in due process as someone with, who's wealthy. But that's not the police officer's fault. But unfortunately, the blame is always on the police. Why? I think it's because we're tangible. People can get to us. You can't get to these politicians. You can't get to the judges. So you can get to the police. But it's not the police officer's fault what goes on in court. It's a total separate entity. And that's why I tell people, doesn't matter who I arrested. I always show them respect. That Listen, even if I catch you with a gun in your hand, you are innocent till proven guilty. But it's my job to bring you to court. That's right. the separation. Once yeah. I bring you to court, now it's in the court system, but unfortunately, it's where the police get the blame. Why? Again, I say it's because we're tangible. Yeah. And often because when you're engaged with people like that, it doesn't look pretty, you know, and people want pretty. People want pretty. And, and when you're dealing with uh, people who are violent offenders, it, it doesn't look pretty. It, it's not going to look pretty. It, it, it's not pretty. Sometimes I know this is, sounds kind of funny. I, I would tell my people and kind of equate it to this. Like, police work is like a... It's like a caterpillar. So the caterpillar is crawling around. It's, it, it's kind of ugly, right? But eventually it becomes a butterfly. So I know it sounds kind of funny, but it's the same thing. Police work is ugly. You might have to wrestle with someone, get them in handcuffs, for them eventually to go to jail to turn their lives around to become a butterfly. I know it sounds kind of funny, but that's, that would be my correlation. It is ugly to become something nice. Sometimes yeah. things have to go, you know, sometimes things get worse before they get better. But it's kind of tough to, to, to teach. That's why I think it needs to start in our schools. We need to teach our kids respect for authority. We need to teach our kids financial planning. We need to teach them criminal justice. We need to reframe what we teach in school. You know, things are outdated and we're teaching the same stuff. We have to evolve to teach our kids what's going to make them survive in the world and understand and have open minds. We have to teach the open mindset. And unfortunately, that's where we're hurting is this mindset in this country in particular that it's become either a left mindset or right mindset. But I think we need to find somewhere in the middle where it's about what's best for our people, best right. for America. Yeah, yeah. And what's best isn't always what's most comfortable or what looks the best. Sometimes the best is just the best. Um, and it And it doesn't always feel nice, look nice. It doesn't always appease everyone or affirm everyone. Um, so I think, I think you're right. I'm uh, glad you said that. I think that's why John and I have become successful in a short amount of time as far as getting viewers and people, um, you know, people form an alliance with our podcast is because we're saying things that are uncomfortable for most to actually say because it's true. So we're saying them even at the risk of being offensive because we want to be honest. Right. And I think that's why leadership in law enforcement is so important right now. One of my favorite quotes, I think Max Dupree, I think is the, is the author of this quote, says something to the effect that a leader defines reality, says thank you, and in between serves as people, um, or, or something to that effect. Um, and I think that's so true. I think if, if we had leaders in these agencies 
defining reality. Like, listen, this is what the police do. This is this is our job. This is this is what we're called to do. Um, and and we're we're called to make those that are doing the right thing feel comfortable in their homes and on their streets, and those who are doing the wrong thing to feel extremely uncomfortable when we're around. And then in in between there, serve their serve their officers under them, make them better, do things for them to um uh you know get better in their careers and eventually take over those leadership positions with character, integrity, courage, that sort of thing. I think it's such a, a big missing piece in law enforcement right now. I like that quote. I, I think you actually, am I right? I think you put a tweet out about that, right? I think um, that, maybe I did a while ago. Yeah. Put that, yeah. I remember, yeah. I, I remember, I'm pretty sure it was you reading yeah. that. You know, I like that. I, those are things that I, I love to live by. You have to be, and that's why I think it's faulty that's happening with the executives and the NYPD. And I pick on the NYPD because that's where I served. And, you know, that's my, my forte most knowledgeable with, but, our leaders are the majority. I say the majority because there's always a, a, a few that step outside the box. But the majority of the executives right now in the NYPD are not stepping outside the box, and they're not serving their people. It's, it's becoming very self-serving that they're not they're not risking being offensive and doing what's right because they want to pave the way for their sons and daughters when they get on the job. They, or maybe they owe other people favors that they've utilized nepotism to get far in their careers. That's uh, that I take. I have a big issue with that. In order to be an effective leader, you have to put others before you put yourselves. And I think that's why I'm not trying to toot my own horn. That's why I was effective is because I put my men and women first before I put myself. And I really believe that, and I really stand by that. I actually enjoyed it. I had gratification when I saw men and women become better than I was. And I remember I, I enjoyed it. I have I would have some young guys on the job and young girls, and they started out and. They were full of fire, but a little meek when it came to doing special operations. And when I instilled in them that confidence and they started to become, uh, you know, confident and, and knowledgeable, because I always say confidence breeds confidence, I, I would appreciate it even more than them. I, I mean, I remember used to, I used to sometimes behind closed doors and I would tell guys, hey, you see so-and-so, you see that? I said, that guy's going to be better than me. And I enjoyed that. I really did. Right. So, yeah, you, you held leadership. Um positions in NYPD. You retired as a lieutenant special assignment. Can you talk about as a lieutenant special assignment, what you did in that role, uh, what your people below you or that you were serving did in their roles? Uh, in that Absolutely. Unit? Absolutely. So I had the best men and women. As a lieutenant, I ran at the time, and I say at the time because it's changed. I was the lieutenant of special operations and the special operations unit, it was comprised of several different teams. And I had teams that conducted anti-crime work, which was plain clothes, and their ultimate mission, their focus, was getting illegal firearms off the street, arresting uh, potential perpetrators, persons of interest that committed shootings, robberies, things of that sort. In addition to that, I also had uh, teams that were called uh, crew suppression. They went out, uh, depending on the uh, particular type of work we were doing out that day, sometimes they were in uniform if it required a presence or maybe suppression of something particular with a crew. Uh, and sometimes they went out working in plain clothes, and their job was to target the crew members that were facilitating crimes in our housing developments in the South Bronx. In addition to that, I oversaw community affairs. I oversaw uh, various units, such as the Explorer Coordinator Unit, which I volunteered uh, a majority of my time to help these kids. I really enjoyed it. Uh, auxiliary police officers, uh, which I put my hat off to those auxiliary. They're volunteers. They don't wear a gun. 
they don't get paid. They just take their time out because they want to help. Uh, some of them uh, have full-time jobs themselves, and they take the time out to help. So I want to thank those auxiliary. My hat's off to them. Uh, so it, it was it was fascinating. And what we did on a daily basis, we did an analysis of crime trends, patterns, clusters that were going on in the in the precinct, and we would zero in on specific locations, specific persons of interest, so that we could curb these illegal firearms and shootings that were happening in the South Bronx, but to, especially in the South Bronx, it was the poorest, it's uh, the poorest congressional district in the country, and uh, we have. Uh, a propensity for violence in, in this area. So that was our forte on a daily basis. We came in, we had the briefings amongst each other. So, uh, sometimes I would have all the teams together and I would address them. Sometimes I would address teams by themselves. Sometimes I would address maybe two or three cops or one cop, depending on, uh, on what was suited. But what I did like to do, which I, I found that was my leadership style, was I like to ask questions. I like to make the guys. The men and women that work for me, leaders among themselves. So if I had a mission or something that would be done, or if they asked me a question, sometimes my, my, I would just respond with a question. Well, they would say, hey, uh, you know, uh, what do you think about this and that? And I would say, well, what do you think? What do you think? I said, you know, what do you think we should do? And they would say, well, I think we should do this. Great. Do it. Let's see how it works out. And then instead of being punitive, Afterwards, that's where we get an opportunity to discuss it, reflect on what happened, and we learn from it. Say, hey, you know what? You said let's do A to E. This worked out great. Now we can utilize it moving forward. You know, Or it didn't work out well. What do we learn from it, and how do we build on it? And that's how we build leaders amongst themselves and critical thinkers. Because I think it's a mistake to be a micromanager. And that's what happens with ineffective leadership is they micromanage. Why? Because they don't trust their people, and they don't have the confidence in themselves. They lack uh, competence in themselves also, or sometimes just pure laziness, which is why they micromanage people. And what we do when we micromanage people is we now alleviate the ability to be a critical thinker. We can't make decisions. Our people are frozen because when it comes time to make a decision, they have in their head, well, the, a boss above me, he said we have to do this and it's black and white. So now we don't give that person the opportunity to be a critical thinker. Micromanaging is 100% ineffective. It does not work. The only time micromanaging can work is if we're in a process of discipline and we have to curb certain behaviors, but it's short temporary. Ultimately, for our people to grow, we have to be delegative and authoritative, and they intertwine depending on this case and the scenario. Yeah. I, and it just comes down to having a level of humility as a leader as well to understand, like, hey, especially, especially in a specialty unit as you were um, in and leading. To understand, hey, I'm getting the best cops into my unit here. I don't need to micromanage them. We're a team. We work together. Um, you know, and I, you know, at the end of my career as a sergeant on on a, a small unit, I had five guys, and we were doing a lot of uh, plainclothes type work ourselves. Like there were times I I would say, hey, I think we should do this, and and guys on my team would be like, ah, Sarge, I don't know about that. I think maybe what if we try this? And I'd be like. Yeah, you know what? I like that idea better. Let's do that because if if it's a better idea, do it. <laughs> it may not be your idea. It may be a guy who is is serving under you, but it's a better idea. Do it. Like, well, think about how valuable it is. I, I would say sometimes I would have forty to fifty, forty to fifty men and women working for me at a time, depending on on on, on manpower numbers and. 
So I would say sometimes, let's say I had a briefing and we were we had a mission and we were going over certain things. If I'm addressing 50 people, I have a better chance of learning from them than they do for me because I have one mind, one mind, and and several ideas coming from one person. But if I have 50 uh, a talented men and women, now I have a chance to get 50 talented men and women. I learned so much from these men and women. In particular, I would say this. We have to understand generation and, and what we learn. So you and I were, were, were probably a similar age. We grew up and we kind of transitioned to this modern uh, uh, technological era. But some of the kids that start, some of the men and women that were to me, they grew up in it. So when they had ideas that came to targeting uh, persons of interest by social media and how to use these phones, I would learn from them. I would sit down and say, listen, you got to show me this. I'm a dinosaur with this. I have no way to do it. I, I got on the job. I started with typewriters. So you have to be humble and you have to understand. I would tell people to be an effective leader because guys would call me all the time. What are you doing over there? I said, it's very simple. You have to build relationships. You have to build a relationship with your people and your team. And they have to trust that you trust their abilities. And you have to be humble and sometimes say, you know what? You can't expect, you can't say I'm the strongest, I'm the smartest, you know, I'm the fastest. You have to, as a leader, you have to know how to use the best resources you have. So if I have that particular guy, he's the best speaker. And if there's a presentation that needs to be made, why not utilize him? That's what a good leader does. And you exploit the strengths of your people. Right. And the weaknesses, you work on them. But not at a point where you look to humiliate or embarrass them. But we identify them so that we can work on them. But you exploit those strengths so that they they could be the best version of themselves. Right. And ultimately, you get the best version of your teams. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know like you you alluded to it earlier when we were talking um, you know, in the podcast here that getting guns off the street was one of the main missions of one of the groups, at least, that you were over. I know in listening to you on other podcasts, that was something that you were really dedicated to doing is trying to pull these illegal weapons off the street. Can you talk about, uh, I've, I've heard you don't do such a good job articulating what a police officer does. Like, so people, people think cops are just, I don't know what people are thinking right now, but a lot of what is put out there in the press and everything is that cops just go out there willy nilly, just stopping anybody. And a lot of times it's a race-based thing. They're just stopping people that look a certain way. Can you just kind of articulate when you're on the street and you're a good cop, not a police officer, a good cop, and, and you are doing your job, what it means to establish baseline behavior, to be able to pick out those things that are off kilter, and then how a police officer uses that to engage in purposeful contacts uh, to try to curb violent crime. I'm glad they use that because that's actually terminology I always use. Baseline. That's the foundation of police work. It doesn't matter if you're in uniform, if you're in place, uh, plain clothes, but there is a baseline to doing police work. I've said this on the podcast before. I don't want to bore people if they watch it, but I would constantly preach this to my people. And sometimes we have to say the same things over and over so that we drill it into us. That's why when I was in the Marines, why we were so effective. Because in the Marine Corps, you do something over and over. That's the keys to mastery. They say to mastery, you have to do something 10,000 times. So constantly do the same thing over and over. That's the keys to mastery. So what I would tell my people is this, especially if I would get someone new to the unit, you have to create a baseline. And I would say this, let's envision this goes for new cops. And this goes for cops that have years on the job. Sometimes it's good to go back to the foundation. You have to create a baseline of what your post is going to look like that day. So I used to use this 
uh, analogy. So let's say, for instance, I assign you to Yankee Stadium today. And I use Yankee Stadium because that was in the confines of the South Bronx. And let's potentially say um, it's June 25th and it's 90 degrees. So you have to form a baseline and you're going to be posted on 166th Street and River. I'm sorry, uh, 166th Street and River Avenue. So you have to envision in your mind what is my post going to look like? That's the baseline. So you should, before you even get there, expect in your mind what you're going to see. So you're probably going to see people wearing Yankee t-shirts, smiling t-shirts, shorts, drinking beer, smiling together in groups and crowds. That's what you should expect to see. That's your baseline. So now when something does not fit that baseline, that's what you draw your attention to. That's what a good police officer does, ultimately a cop, and that's how we lead to something that's intrusive. So now if I see three men walking together on a 90-degree day at a Yankee game wearing hoodies, black jeans, the black jeans are tied up tight with a belt, with big boots, and the boots are tied up. This does not fit the baseline. Let's say they're not facing the game. They're not laughing. Now, I'm not saying that's going to elicit an immediate response of a detainment or stop. But it is going to draw my attention. I'm going to start to focus. And I'm going to watch their behavioral indicators. Because it does not fit the baseline. And that eventually may lead to an encounter. Which is part of the case I told you, people versus the board. Why? Because I want to keep the people of the community at that game safe. Now, I could encounter these three, right, based on a conversation. Maybe I learned that, hey, you know what? Uh, they're from a different area. They're not used to the climate. And uh, they're actually very comfortable. Or maybe the three are, are disabled and have some type of uh, uh, impairment. But maybe the three are up to no good and maybe all of them are packed with weapons and they're up to something. So that's why you have to start to look at the behavioral indicators and lead to intrusive police work. That's the trained eye. Having those observational skills. Draw your attention to what doesn't fit the baseline. Start to look at uh, behavioral indicators that mimic those that carry firearms illegally. Right. Uh, so that's the baseline of police work. Absolutely. Yeah. And and you develop that. Over, over the years as a police officer, you really develop that because you become very well versed on who lives in the neighborhoods you you patrol, uh, what's normal activity in those neighborhoods and what's not normal. And you also get very good at reading people and how they're interacting just on viewing you. Like I, I remember, you know, in my career, like something I, I tried to refer to this in court one time in a suppression hearing and the, the ADA didn't let me, the assistant district attorney didn't let me do it, but felony stretching. Like I was, I was trying to describe my interaction with someone who upon me interacting with them was, was stretching in weird ways, like a passenger in a vehicle and I'm up talking to people in the vehicle and my front seat passenger is literally stretching all the way down and touching the floorboard. Well, immediately as I immediately knew I had something in that car, I, I knew it immediately. And, and there ended up being a gun, uh, on one of the passengers in that car. But I, I, I was observing things that the normal everyday person just isn't picking up on or understanding. And but then we'll demonize. They'll see a cop doing something or talking to someone and they'll just demonize them without really understanding the experience or knowledge that that officer has. And I think that's such an important part to bring into this conversation. I, I love you say that. And that's why I revert back to speaking about the trained eye, because police officers see what others don't see. And I always, I use this example. And 
that's why I say police policing is not a one size fits all. Your community, the observation skills you made are probably different from the community I worked in. So I worked at a high, you know, a metropolis. Worked in the South Bronx, and constantly there's there's a, a, a constant mode of transit. I would see buses, and, and you could probably understand this and equate this that sometimes you just get so good at seeing what other people don't see because you saw it so many times. So I would see someone just out of a flash, out of my eye, running down the street. And I knew, just in that eighth of a second, I knew if they just robbed someone, if they raped someone, or if they just missed a bus. How did I know that? I just know because it was in my unconscious compass because I did it so many times. That's why I spoke on other, other podcasts. I like to revert back to this book that I read by Malcolm Gladwell called Blink. And in that book, it talks about when your conscience, uh, your unconscious confidence is so good because you've done something a thousand times. Like, for instance, a baseball player, right before they're about to hit the ball on, on a swing, another professional baseball player will look at it and say, hey, that's a home run. Without the ball ever even touching it, well, how did you know that? Because he saw it a thousand times. Right. And, which it, and that's why I, I, I also equate this to that. I talked about this on the podcast. I don't know if you heard it, that. Sometimes the problem is this cops have trouble articulating the fantastic police work of what they saw and how they led to an arrest because, and I, this is my uh, analogy. You can be a, a great player in a sport, but not necessarily a great coach. And what does that mean? There's some cops are just so good at what they do, but they can't explain it to someone else. So that's why sometimes we see in a sport, you could be Michael Jordan, you could be the best, but that doesn't mean you go into be the best coach. Because a coach, not only do you have to know how to play it, but you have to know, also know how to teach it and explain it for someone else to understand. Right. Yeah. And, and like, that's so true. Being able to see someone and in a blink know, like, what you're dealing with, if it's something that you need to interact with or not. Um, you know, in my career, we, we used to have, I, I would call it the happy crack walk. Cause when I started in early, uh, in, I know what you're early, talking about <laughs> in early 2000s, like, I'd see a guy you know, just going across the street, like you didn't have a care in the world. And then I'd swing the block. And two minutes later, I'd see that guy moving with purpose with a spring in a step, be like, man, I know he just bought, he's holding. Like you, you just develop this ability to know what, like, and understand things that the general public generally doesn't pick up on. That's why this goes back to what you're saying. When you saw that guy stretching in the car, this is what people don't understand. They don't see what you see. Someone else may look at that, and that's why I have I take issue to some of these body cameras and just camera footage in general, because others cannot see what you saw. What you saw was, even if it was just such a small minutia, just the smallest movement, but what you saw, that the, the way this, this particular person of interest was stretching, it, it was like, I talked about this on other podcasts too, you know when you look at those images, it's a blur, and you have to stare at it, and then the image pops out? Yeah. That's what you saw. It was a blur, but it popped out because it was it didn't fit the baseline. It wasn't normal to the way someone else stretches. And someone else might not understand that. And you know what? In some cases, you may make that stop, and the outcome may be negative results. But that doesn't mean you were wrong. And this is why I take issue to the public. They say, well, he made the stop, and the guy didn't have a gun on him. You're right. The outcome did not lead to positive results. But the movement's mimic the indicators of someone else that has had a firearm in the past so that's why we have the detainment reasonable suspicion that gives you the right to detain someone to do a preliminary investigation you know based on a reasonable amount of time that potentially leads to an arrest or not 
And that's right. why that covers us because it shows that, hey, we saw things that other people that can't see that may lead to a proper cause or may not. Right, right. Yeah, and I alluded, um, you know, in the intro that you, you, you're you a decorated NYPD. One of, the, one of the things, kind of switching gears here, is one of the things that you uh, were engaged in and, and uh, you know, with the level of gun violence and everything is a call involving a, a five-year-old who was shot. Can you talk about that call and what, what happened? And, and really, it drives home the point why we as police officers are so driven, um, you know, aggressive cops are so driven to deal with people who are engaged in violent crime. Can you talk about that call? Yes, actually, I just put a tweet out about it. And it wasn't to toot my own horn. To be honest, it was more of a mockery. A, a mockery to the Civilian Complaint Review Board and the public that has this banter towards cops with Civilian Complaint Review Boards because they just don't understand it. When someone has civilian complaints, it doesn't make them a bad cop. In many cases, it actually makes them a good cop. And I'm sure we're going to go into that explain it. But what I can say is this. I had put the picture uh, of when I had the conference that particular night of that encounter, it was a conference, and I was asked questions uh, by different news reporters about that incident. But I put that picture up and said, hey, this is not on my 50A. The point is that on the 50A, we only see civilian complaints and discipline, but we never see the good things that cops do. And that's unfortunate. So that's why I put that up there. But on this particular day, just to show what it is being a cop and how you put others before you put yourself. So right or wrong, I have to be honest, I... Very rarely ever ever carried my firearm in my career off duty. You're supposed to, but I was always very active physically, and I was always running around doing so. I just didn't have the the capability necessary of carrying a firearm. I, I was taking part in boxing, jujitsu. I just I didn't have a place for it. So on this particular day, this was in uh, November of uh, of 2017. No, sorry, 2018. So I'm, I'm I remember I got out of my car was unarmed all i had was a pair of jeans on and a t-shirt and i'm walking i'm walking into the precinct and my commanding officer i'll never forget a great guy he's running out the building he says we gotta go we gotta go he throws me the keys says let's go let's go drive i said okay where are we going i, I wasn't gonna say no what listen i respect my authority he told me to go it didn't matter i had a gun or not you need me i'm there let's go so we're driving to uh to this building this housing development on webster avenue in the south bronx he said we gotta go they said there was a kid shot I didn't have a gun on me. I didn't have a gun belt. I didn't have any tools. All I had was my commanding officer, a set of keys, and I'm driving this car, and I got there as fast as I can. We got in there. We didn't take the elevator. We ran upstairs. We got to the sixth floor. At the sixth floor, there I see there's two cops that already have responded, two young police officers doing a great job. They were rubbing this young five-year-old that was bleeding profusely, talking to him, rubbing his head. And at the time, they didn't have a tourniquet, but they were trying to stop the bleeding, holding his arm, they gloved. They were, they were there trying to help. And in close proximity, within about 10 feet, there's a stairwell. And his father had met his demise. The father was shot. He was laying there, uh, killed. There was a pool of blood. So at this time, I had learned in the Marine Corps how to make a makeshift tourniquet. So I took off my belt, off my jeans, and assisted in making a makeshift tourniquet, assisting in stopping the bleeding. Immediately, there was an another kid that worked for me. Fantastic guy, John Olson, fellow Marine was one of my police officers, special operations guy, grabbed the kid, ran downstairs. They got him into the ambulance, and we got the kid out of there. But this just goes to show this is what police officers and cops do is they put others before they put themselves. So I was there with no firearm, just there to help. Yeah. But that will never be my 50A. And those with an agenda to target police officers and create this negative persona, 
they don't highlight those incidents. They only highlight the civilian complaints that don't tell a complete story. Just gives a mirage of right. what it's like to be Eric Dim for a day. Right. And and just the, the story of a kid being shot, it's it's just it should get a lot more press and the and the people, the suspects and the criminals who um are are at fault in things like that should be getting locked up and getting a whole lot more <laughs> Um, you know, just wrath brain brought down on them. But many times those stories are kind of pushed to the side and we see this narrative against the police, against officers such as yourself who are doing things like that. No one ever talks about that. And like you said, it's not in your jacket. Only only the negative stuff is in your jacket. And it's I a took shame. pride. Yes, and I took pride in this particular case. And what I did emanate out of this case, uh, I did receive a proclamation, which I appreciate. I, I didn't want any accolades or awards. I have to be honest. I know it sounds crazy, but that's the only award I saved. All the other awards I have, I threw out in the garbage. Why? I said, listen, I don't, I don't need this to take up space. It's in my mind. It's in my heart. Um, so I, I didn't really care about the awards. And, and, and a plaque I saved that uh, my men and women bought for me and that shows the shields. Other than that, the rest of them I just threw in the garbage because I, I just felt they take up space. I have the memories of it. Um, but what I did emanate out of this is numerous civilian complaints because my teams and I were targeting the potential perpetrators. We were doing our investigations. We were working along with the detective squads, trying to find those responsible for shooting and killing this kid's father and potentially almost killed this young five-year-old. I tell you, this kid was extremely brave. He was barely even crying. Super brave. I, I couldn't be more proud of this five-year-old boy. I mean, I always ask myself, if I was shot, could I handle myself at this age as well as that five-year-old kid? It was super impressive. Wow. Um, but yes, you know, we were out there trying to help this kid. I mean, if someone is out there dangerous enough to shoot a kid in front of his father and ultimately shoot the kid, what else are they capable of? So they should want men and women that were out there like myself and my teams to help the community. But we did uh, garner numerous civilian complaints that had emanated from doing this investigation. One particular perpetrator we arrested had some type of nexus to this. Uh, he had fired rounds in the rear of one of those buildings. Had a rap sheet known to uh, to fight with police officers. He had rendered a uh, another lieutenant unconscious in the past in a neighboring precinct. This is the information that we had, and that when we met with encountered this particular perpetrator, we had a tactical plan. We already knew we were going to be met with resistance and potential violence, and that's what the public doesn't understand. That's why good cops have to be prepared for violence and people have to understand that violence has to be met with violence because we need these police officers to be strong on the behalf of others to keep us safe so you got a complaint out of that interaction can you talk about what that complaint was all about and what happened yes so it wasn't this particular action on that day but i say there was a nexus between it because at this time we're investigating all persons of interest that had a potential tie to this shooting and one in particular which was within a couple of days of this incident, we had made an arrest of a shooter in the rear of that building. And we had reason to believe that he, uh, to this day, he does have a nexus to that shooting. Because they're all part of the same gang. So when we talked to this particular person of interest that had did a shooting, eventually the outcome was an arrest, but also a civilian complaint. And that particular perpetrator walks the streets today. And after that, committed more acts of violence on police officers, of numerous assaults, and did shoot at someone through a door. So this particular person still walks the streets. Right. And can you talk about the complaint he lodged against you guys? Like what sure, that was all about? 
Yes, it was actually, it was caught on video, it was viral. Uh, we actually uh, encountered this particular perpetrator. We were met with resistance immediately. Uh, this particular per perpetrator took a swing towards my face. I was able to duck it and evade getting hit. The fight was on. It was a struggle. I had to deploy numerous strikes. We were all in close proximity. There was a large crowd. In this struggle, he managed to get on top of one of my police officers. He was trying to bite him. He bit another police officer. He bit another one. Two tasers were utilized, and the fight continued. And uh, eventually, we were able to get uh, this particular person of interest in handcuffs. But I also did get a civilian complaint review board that was substantiated, and I lost 15 vacation days for getting this uh, particular perpetrator in handcuffs. And what was crazy about the narrative, the Civilian Complaint Review Board wrote in their narrative that I was exonerated for using force up to a point. Then they felt I deployed too many strikes. And that if I wanted to get my police officer out from underneath his grasp, that punching him was not a way to achieve that goal. <laughs> and how, like, my, my question is, how does a person who's never done police work, who, who may have never even been in a fight, um, or in a fight with a violent person such as because you, you're going in, you you have information about this person and you you believe that they could or very likely will be armed and you know that they're going to fight with you. Um, how does how does a person on the outside in a citizen complaint review board decide what level of force uh, you used and when it should have stopped or when it should have looked differently? How does that how does it happen? That's a fantastic question. I use this analogy all the time. I'm well-read. I like to read books, and that's where I get my information. I think we're most educated by reading. And that's why I go back to what I said. Readers are leaders, right? Or it's anonymous. We can reverse that. Leaders are readers. So there's a study that really emanates and I think corresponds with this very well. That's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, have you heard of it? Probably heard I, of it. I've Ooh. not. It was a study in the late 1990s by two professors. One was Professor Dunning and Professor Kruger. And what they determined from their study was that the least amount someone knows about a subject, the more they think they, they could do it. Why? Because they don't know what they don't know. And that's exactly what's going on in Civilian Complaint Review Board investigators and also the public. They don't know police work. They don't actually know what goes on in the inner lines of police work. So the least amount they know about it, the more they think they could do it. And the best analogy I could give is this. We have people that watch Super Bowl. They sit on the couch and they watch. They never played a day of football in their life. But then they yell at the screen why someone didn't throw the touchdown or why someone didn't get the tackle. Well, it's easy to say when you're sitting on your couch and you've never done it. It's a lot different when you're actually in the game. Right. And that's what we're to be a police officer. Yeah. So can you talk about the Citizen Complaint Review Board? When, when was that put in place in New York City? Or has it always been in place? Um, that, that's actually a great question. So the, civilian, the, the, the ideology of the Civilian Complaint Review Board has been... Um, in existence since the early 1950s in New York City. But up to 1993, it was, uh, it was a component of the police department internally of an analysis of an incident where someone can make a complaint against a police officer. But in 1993, at the time, Mayor David Dinkins um, in, in, instilled and gave the permission, and they, they, it was the inception of the Civilian Complaint Review Board as it is today. It became an independent watchdog, and it was all civilian personnel to investigate the police for four different types of cases or criteria. 
And we use the acronym FADO, F-A-D-O. And what that is, they investigate F, which is force of abuse, A, abuse of authority, D, discourtesy, and O, offensive language. So since 1993, up till now, the Civilian Complaint Review Board is an independent watchdog that is all civilian, that investigates police officers for those particular cases. And what was also unique about this is they were granted subpoena power. What that means is the Civilian Complaint Review Board can subpoena records from the police department, uh, camera footage from a bodega, a store. They don't need the police department to do a FOIL request. They can subpoena paperwork and information on their own and do their own investigations. And what has happened over time is they have more investigators now and more funding to do these investigations. So <clears throat> how does it work? So if, you, if you're doing your job and you get a complaint, does that complaint go to the police department, to NYPD, or an NYPD sends it to the Citizen Complaint Review Board, or does it go to the CCRB? How, how does that process work? You know what? I wish John was here right now. Because John, actually, that's why I think we make an interesting duo. So I got the most civilian complaints, and John was the commanding officer to the liaison uh, between the internal affairs and the civilian complaint review board. I think right now I'd be like, oh, I'll tell you what the fuck goes on there. <laughs> John, where are you? You better get him on this call. So it's interesting. So when there's a complaint, the complaint goes to the internal affairs civilian complaint review board liaison unit. They get all the information and the paperwork on it. And ultimately, the Internal Affairs is supposed to work with the Civilian Complaint Review Board to assist them and give them all the necessary paperwork they request in doing their investigation. So the Internal Affairs would not independently uh, investigate that. That's out of their purview. Uh, if it's something of uh, corruption or misconduct, then the Internal Affairs would then investigate it. And there would be a corresponding investigation along with the Civilian Complaint. Okay. So, so it's very, which which why it's very understand. People have to understand that hey, when the civilian complaint has an investigation, if it was that egregious, the internal affairs would get involved. Because in most cases, particularly myself, when you have a civilian complaint, you're still out there in full duty. You still have a gun. You're still doing police work. Why? Because this is their purview. With you know, discourtesy, offensive language, force of abuse. If it's excessive force, the internal affairs is going to step in and investigate that. If it's unnecessary force. Our inspections unit is going to investigate that. So when it comes to force of abuse, the Civilian Complaint Review Board has an opportunity to look at it. Like, what, could other types of force be used? Uh, if it was, if it gets to the point that it was excessive or unnecessary, internal affairs supposed to investigate it anyway. So that's why people don't understand. You know, well, the Civilian Complaint Review Board substantiated it, but you are held to different courts of opinion. You're held to the court of opinion by the Civilian Complaint Review Board, which is completely different than what goes on with internal affairs. Wow. So it, correct me then if I'm wrong. So you could get a complaint that the internal affairs is basically not concerned about. It goes to the CCRB and then they just rock your world with all these like... That, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because that was all my cases. All Every one of my civilian complaint cases, they referred it to the internal affairs and internal affairs, uh, internal affairs found uh, no argument or no issue and found my actions were appropriate. And they kicked it back to civilian complaint. Which is why I said I never received any department administrative charges from the NYPD. All the administrative charges I received was from the Civilian Complaint Review Board. The Civilian Complaint Review Board, in which we have learned, recently John and I 
John McCarr, if anybody's listened from uh, New York's Finance Retirement Unfiltered podcast, we participated via Zoom in a monthly meeting from, for the CCRB. I was really surprised that they actually let us speak. But there we learned the entire time that public speakers that they had were all had this anti-rhetoric, anti-sentiment towards the police. And the CCRB was just encouraging them and enabling them. And in and, and some substance, they did say that they try and they seek out to substantiate these complaints. But unfortunately, the, and they did say this, that the patrol guy for the New York City Police Department and law gives the police officers latitude and they can't substantiate it. So they're not trying to correspond with NYPD policy. They're going on their own path. And that's why I take many issues to what the Civilian Complaint Review Board is doing. In most cases, uh, actually all the cases that they substantiate for myself, when you look at my 50A, it says substantiated. And I never got an opportunity to combat all these because I was told it would take two to three years to go to trial with them. But one case in particular that was so egregious, they charged me with, uh, uh, with uh, forcible touching and, uh, and assault. And the reason why I say that, so the Civilian Complaint Review Board has those Force of abuse, abuse without discourtesy, offensive language. They had 18 months from the time of the investi investigation, and 18 months from the time of the incident to investigate and to come up with a disposition. If it exceeds the 18 months, the only way they could proceed with it is if they if they determine that the, if proven, this could be if proven, this could be a crime in court. They could then exceed the statute of limitations and charge you with a crime. So I actually had administrative trial. Well, I was fighting with a particular perpetrator in the cells because they would not subject themselves to a strip search. It was every reason to believe that they had a firearm on them. Uh, that I was charged with forcible touching and uh, assault. And I did take that to department trial, which I won, and I was found not guilty. But if you look at the 58, it still says substantiated guilty. That, I think, is a farce, and the unions need to step in and have that changed. How is that and that's why I hope to be the cows to change this. Right. And and how can they keep that listed as substantiated when you were found without fault? Well, that's that's why I take great issue. So forever, when you look up my 50A and you look up that particular case, it says substantiated. So I do understand the mindset of the public because they're saying, wow, he, this case was substantiated. He was found guilty. But what they don't know is behind the curtain, there was an administrative trial and I was found not guilty. Yeah. Now, in, in total, like how many, because again, we talked about how you have this title, the most complaint about COP and NYPD. In total, how many complaints did you receive and how many of those were substantiated? Well, that's very substantiated. Yes. So, uh, in quotes, I, I, it's a great opportunity for the public they have an opportunity. And I want to use myself as an example because, and I own this. I'm not saying, oh, I didn't have these complaints. I own it, I do have the most complaints. But it's a byproduct of doing intrusive and, I say, outstanding police work, getting the worst off the worst of the streets of the South Bronx, helping these communities. So what I can tell you is this. Um, if you look at my record, up to 2018, between before legislation started to change, where the Civilian Complaint Review Board started to get more investigators and more funding, and there was legislative enactments changed, and this anti-rhetoric uh, and sediment was really driven and the C CCRB was getting more power and authority to substantiate these cases. You can see up to 2018, I really didn't have that many complaints. I had one 2005, one 2007, and 2010 I had two. Then I think I had, it was like 2012 I had one. Then there was like a three-year period, even with doing because I was an uh, anti-crime sergeant in plain clothes, working on the special operational talent like myself, doing intrusive police work, getting guns. 
there was a three-year period I didn't have any. But once we get to 2018, I started to get complaint after complaint after complaint. It was mounting. That period from 2018 to 2020, was two, June 4, 2020 was the last CCRB I got, was probably 75 or 80% of my complaints, and they were all substantiated. So 100%, we could see the correlation. I was completely targeted by an overzealous civilian complaint review board that was weaponizing the new legislation, this post-George Floyd mindset, and also they weaponized the disciplinary matrix that was indoctrinated in 2021 by a former police commissioner, Jeremy Shea, who I believe was an ineffective commissioner who sold the police department to these uh, anti-police advocates. So... Were you a lieutenant at that point when you started in 2018, when you really started getting all these complaints? Were you a lieutenant at that point? Yes, it's ironic. 2018, I had received numerous awards, lieutenant of the year, lieutenant finest of the finest. For one of the cases was saving that five-year-old and getting uh, numerous perpetrators, having the most firearms in the city with my teams, uh, getting citations from community. The community loved me. The community was giving me awards. And the irony to that was when that's when I started to get garner the most amount of complaints. So and yet I was out there with a gun belt, running around with my teams, getting these illegal firearms, and also getting civilian complaints. Now, in your opinion, why why do you think it started then? Like, what what was it about you, or you know, why the focus? Just because you were a lieutenant and you were out there and in front. Well, I think I, 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 that's exactly it. So. I learned in the Marine Corps. So in addition, I don't know if I mentioned this, I went to officer candidate school in the Marine Corps. So I actually, so I went enlisted first. I went to officer candidate school and I won. I'm not trying to do my own horn, but just to show you, I was driven for leadership. I won the honor graduate of OCS, which is another boot camp. So I took all these traits to, to, to the police department. And what I learned in the Marine Corps was that leaders lead from the front, not in the rear with the gear. But that was, I got a lot of resistance and push back from the police department because that was not the leadership style of the police department. It was, you know, lead from the rear, let your men and women do it and kind of stay hands off so that you don't have much exposure. But I had extreme amount of exposure because I was out there with my men and women in order to be an effective leader. You have to be there from the front. That doesn't mean you actually do everything, but you lead from the front so that you could see the whole picture of what's going on. And that's what I did. It got me exposure. I was targeted by the cop watch patrol unit, which is completely has an anti-advocate sentiment for the police. It's actually hurting their community. And I was targeted because my teams and I were so effective in getting these violent perpetrators off the street. They were coached by their lawyers to make these civilian complaints. The Civilian Complaint Review Board is comprised of these young investigators that have an anti-sentiment for police. They come from, most of them come from outside New York, don't understand the, uh, the nomenclature of New York City or the demographics of it. So like you said, it appears to be ugly, but they don't get to see the butterfly of it, of how right. we're out there trying to get these bad guys on the street because they don't understand the, the, the nature of, of the demographics and just the, the, the bedrock, the footwork of New York City. So I was exposed, I was targeted, and I also worked in a 99% demographic of black and brown um, neighborhood. So I was a, a white lieutenant leading the charge of these men and women that are out getting these illegal firearms. And I did hear, I did hear scuttlebutt that some of the uh, community uh, leaders were saying, hey, could we get someone that looks more like the community? And, and it shouldn't be about that because I was the most suitable in getting these guns off the street and helping this community. 
And the good people out there that are silent, they know it. I was out there playing basketball with their kids in my time off. Even some of the kids I was arrested, I, I arrested. I was talking to them uh, when I was off duty or, you know, just drive around. Hey, how you doing? You get a job. I knew everything about them. I knew everything about those kids. I knew about their parents. I took pride in that. I took pride in volunteering with the Explorer coordinators, these young kids, mentoring them, making sure they were doing well in school, teach them self-defense, situation awareness, teaching them boxing, teaching them jiu-jitsu. Um, I went to some of these kids, they're sweet 16s, and they were all black, black and brown. It didn't matter. I love them for who they are. Yeah. I think it's really important. I just want to touch on it that you, you and John were able to sit in on, on some of these CCRB meetings and <laughs> you, you guys, you guys saw an, uh, an activist anti-police narrative happening in these meetings. Like you guys felt like there was certain people that were, uh, had, had sway on the CCRB that just don't like the police. I'm glad you asked. The entire room was comprised. Each, every speaker had an anti-police sentiment, a complete disdain for police, uh, except for one. There was one, there was one guy, uh, he called himself a uh, Mo knowledge. He said he had spent a majority of his life in jail and he was an advocate to try to help these kids change their mindset and change the way uh, that they uh, interact with the police. So he was the only one that was giving up some positive information. And the board, the panel, particularly John Jonathan Darsh, who's the executive director of Civilian Complaint Review Board, they were enabling and trying to coach these people into making civilian complaints. Because some of the people are telling stories and their encounters with the police. And as I listened, they were actually incriminating themselves and they were telling how they how they were provoking and they were antagonizing the police that led to an arrest. They were actually articulating how they resisted, but they didn't understand it because they're not police. And they said the civilian complaint review board saying, hey, what you're indicating to me is a struggle and that you uh, you resisted arrest and you elicited a response from the police. Instead, they didn't say that. They encouraged them to make a complaint. And they enabled it, and they gave subliminal message that really appeared to be that no matter what, we are going to find a way to find these police officers guilty, and we will substantiate these complaints by any means possible. Can you give an example for yourself, uh, like a, a complaint that you were involved in that was just so out of line? Um, I'm not sure what the word is I'm looking for. That a, a complaint that you received that was just over the top uh, lies or 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 just Absolutely. Well, I can yeah, show you. I, 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 I want to take you one in particular that I lost twenty vacation days at the end, and which I I can actually show how the disciplinary matrix was weaponized towards me in particular, and how I was uh, targeted by an overzealous civilian complaint review board. So I don't want to give up any names, but it was myself and another lieutenant and two of my police officers, fantastic cops, that were conducting a car stop. The car, stop, the car stop was initiated by two of my cops. The car was parked on the street, uh, all tinted out, and it was parked on the hydrant. It was occupied. Now, we had credible information that this car was involved in potential gang activity, and they may have been related to some shootings. So, at this time, two of my police officers were conducting a stop of that car. The smell of marijuana was emanating from that car. And at this time, they were met with resistance. The occupants of the car, particularly the driver, would not roll down his window. We know that's a major safety issue. And they were talking and talking. And eventually, I was in close proximity 
with this other lieutenant conducting another car stop. That's how busy it was. This is in 50 feet of the actual precinct parking lot. So they had asked that uh, I assist them in this particular stop. So I myself went over to assist them along with this other lieutenant. I have it on body camera. We couldn't be more professional. But for about 10 to 12 minutes, I was engaging them in a conversation, trying to roll down that window so that I could see inside the car. Because at this point, all I could see is silhouettes. It's a major safety issue. Eventually, I got the window down, maybe about an inch or two, and I constantly engaged them. So I informed them during the stop, after about 10 minutes of trying to, and you know, you know it, when we were police officers, you have to be a salesman, trying to sell it of why they should open the window, why it's in the best interest for them, also in the best interest for us. So everyone's safe. So I informed them that if they do not roll them down the window, that eventually I'm going to either break the window or have the car towed with them in it. So eventually, uh, I would say about after 14, 15 minutes, we finally got the window down. We got them outside the car and placed them under arrest for inhibiting us, the ability to do our, do our job. They were brought back to the precinct and they were released on summonses. Now, in this particular case, I lost 20 vacation days. One, the Civilian Complaint Review Board said that I did not smell marijuana. I do not know how they could prove or disprove what I smell from watching a camera. Or what my two police officers initially smelled, since we all said it and said it on camera. I was also charged for abuse of authority, for threatening to break the window, and threatening to uh, tow an occupied car with them in it, which we are told by our legal department to instruct uh, potential perpetrators or persons of interest or occupants that those would be the repercussions if they don't comply with a particular car stop. I even gave them the Supreme Court case. Pennsylvania versus Mims, which gives me the right to ask them out of the car. Uh, so I was, I was, and I was also charged with retaliatory summons for bringing them back. Now, in this particular case, the two police officers um, were substantiated. It was requested that they would receive discipline on the command level, which would mean up to five vacation days or less, which I don't agree with at all. But the lieutenant, he was. Uh, same thing. He was found substantiated at the command level where he would lose potentially up to 10 vacation days. I was substantiated. We were all involved in the same case, but I was substantiated and referred to department trial. Now, I never had an opportunity. I was told that if I wanted to take a department trial, it would take two to three years more. Under this working environment, I did not want to wait. I knew I could not do the police work I was portrayed to, trained to do, and I, it was unappreciated, so I made the decision to make a complete settlement with all these cases. But I lost 20 days. 20 I think this days. was the most egregious case. Yes. And sure enough, one year later, these occupants of this car, they were shot at. Fortunately, they did not get shot, but they were shot at. The car was full of bullet holes. And where do you think they came for help? BSA 7. The same place that they made the civilian complaint. And you know what we did? We you helped them. them. Yeah. And and I think I think that's such a great point. I mean, the 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 people that one day that we're engaged in that are engaged in criminal activity that you know we're we're dealing with as a criminal element, the next day they may be asking for our help and we'll help them. Okay. You know, and that's that's also missed in these conversations. But I just want to point out, so you're what you're describing is you have a car stop for criminal activity. You have you have the smell of marijuana. You have people who are 
who are actively involved in obstructing that investigation by not rolling down the window. Who knows what they did with any marijuana that was in that car in those 12 to 15 minutes that you guys were trying to get them rolled down the window. You're giving them, here are your options. This is what's going to happen. And then they get arrested for obstruction. And then for the CCRB to turn around and punish you and the other officers and the other lieutenant in this case, I think it just shines a light on the, on the punitive nature of the CCRB. And it doesn't, it from that, again, I, I'm not NYPD, I, but from the outside looking in, it appears that it's just a activist group of people who are looking to punish police officers for actually doing their job. Am, am I way off base on saying that? No, not at all. That's unfortunately that's what's become, and that's why I say since the inception, 1993, the ideologies that would be a civilian-based organization, independent watchdog, that would have an opportunity to weigh in on what's going on with the police to have balance, which I understand. We right. have police perspective and a civilian perspective, and we meet halfway and have balance. But it's come to the point now where we've went so far to the uh, sorry, so far to the left. But it's become an anti-advocacy, and, and it's, it's been an extension, and it's an arm of the anti-police advo uh, advocates to stop police officers from doing intrusive police work. That's exactly what it is. The ultimate goal, and if you ask me, they actually met their goal. Because I myself, after that, and I'm sure, and the other two police officers, lieutenant, said, hey, why would we go out and do this intrusive police work if I'm going to lose 20 days like Lieutenant Dim? And that's why I said we also have to look at that discipline matrix that was indoctrinated by the police department. That's what was used and weaponized against me. They used what's called aggravating factors. So there's three different types of penalties you can get with this discipline matrix. Presumptive, which means it's automatic. Mitigating means, hey, there's things that happen. Maybe someone was resisting, so we'll reduce the penalty. But then you can get what's called aggravating factors, which is what I received. So that means that if you have a uh, if you have a a civilian complaint record of discipline, which the civilian complaint review board create so civilian complaint review board created for me, they substantiate all these cases, so they created my own civilian complaint review board substantiate discipline record. Your length of time on the job, right? I had eighteen years on the job. Your time and experience. I was in special operations, and your rank, and I was lieutenant. So those are aggravating factors, and it increases the penalty, and that's how the civilian complaint review board weaponized this matrix against myself and other talented police officers and ranking officers within the department. So your experience and your rank is considered an aggravating circumstance. Not yes. When, in my opinion, it should be the other way. You have more experience. You have more years on the job. So you should have a better understanding of how police work is done. Um, and, and in that case, you were talking about, you, you said you even told these uh, suspects in this car, you gave them case law. I, I mean, on camera, you on hear me signing case law. Yes, and it's on body camera. I would love to do a FOIL request with the police department and play this. On body camera, you hear me recite case law of why. I even told them, look on your phone and you can see the case law of why I have the right to ask you out of the car. But here, our, our safety was not important because these kids had 10 to 15 minutes to make a decision what they do in that car. And unfortunately, I actually put myself and my police officers at risk because we should have broke that window eight minutes prior to that, but we didn't because of this buzzword of de-escalation and the monitoring of these body cameras. Right. So what do we do? We put ourselves at risk. And the Civilian Complaint Review Board <laughs> did not give us the benefit of doubt, nor did they entertain police perspective. 
That's exactly what they should say. Say, Lieutenant Tim has 18 years on the job. He's a special operations lieutenant. This is his experience. This is factual. This is not just anecdotal. This is what a leader does. But that was weaponized against me, the fact that I'm a lieutenant. Right? It's, it, the way they weaponize is, well, he's a lieutenant. He should know better. He's got 18 years on the job. He should know better. He's in special operations. He should know better. And you know what? You're right. Somebody explained to board. I do know better. And I should have broke that window eight, eight minutes prior. And to this day, I say it, I should have. But I waited because I didn't want to get any, anyone in trouble. You know, and worry about civilian complaints. And every time you worry about civilian complaints, and I tell the cops today, you're putting yourself at danger and at risk. It's a shame. The civilian complaint review board is punitive. It's putting cops in harm's way, and it's hurting cops. Because, obviously, after that, I learned, why am I going to continue to do intrusive police work if it's just, just going to put me in a pickle? I'm going to lose 20 vacation days. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's so true. And I, I felt that pressure at the end of my career in Lancaster City, the agency I worked at that I retired out of. Now I work for a, a small agency, a smaller rural agency. But, you know, when I, when I retired out of there, I, I felt that same pressure. And even days before I retired, days before, like, uh, you know, my retirement dropped, I was engaged in an incident where I knew what needed to be done. I knew that this guy needed to be taken down to the ground um, and, and force needed to be used. And I experienced what you talked about, yes. thinking in the back of my head. Well, I know the pressure right now that, uh, you know, we as police officers in that agency were under um, and, you know, how use of force was being viewed. And I didn't. And then that turned into a foot pursuit and it turned into it turned into a mess. And so. I was so disgusted with myself because I knew what needed to be done and I didn't do it. And I made a bad situation even worse because I was afraid. I'll be admit, I'll admit it. I was afraid to use force in that moment because of possible ramifications for using that force because of what we were facing. Right. In because my jurisdiction. it's not, it's not about right and wrong anymore. It's about optics. And right. that, that's what you're working. You're working under the guise of optics. Is this going to look good? Just like mayor Adams. Uh, he said in a, 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 a in his response to a video that went viral in Staten Island where a white police officer had deployed several punches to a, a young black 14-year-old perpetrator, I female, right, went viral. And what did Mayor Adams say? It doesn't look good. So that's what you're held to. And that's what you were thinking. You, you weren't afraid of, of doing your job. You were afraid of how is this going to look. And that's sad. And what this comes down to is unfortunate is that and this is what I like to say. I want to go back to this. The public uses this buzzword de-escalation. They would use that civilian complaint review board also. They don't understand what de-escalation is. Because the reality is, in your particular case, the de-escalation was getting that guy in handcuffs as soon as possible. Sometimes de-escalation is not dragging it out. I think that's what they think de-escalation is, dragging out and talking. Sometimes de-escalation is getting someone in handcuffs as soon as possible, and that ends any problems and gives them, we want to break their OODA loop. Give, break the time that they decide to act and what happened he ended up running and now you're in a pursuit and what could happen in that pursuit he can get hit by a car you can get hit by a car in reality the de-escalation should be get him in handcuffs as soon as possible the public right. doesn't understand for them it's just a buzzword they talk about de-escalation these buzzwords change but you know what they never offer solutions right yeah and 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 right now you know as as a police i'm you know still doing the job I have something on my belt that's basically useless and it's a taser. And when yes. they first came out with a taser, it was, it, it was this tool of de-escalation. You use it 
early on in your use of force matrix continuum, whatever you want to call it, to be able to prevent going hands-on and hurting the suspect or the officer getting hurt. Now, you can't even use it. You, no. the, the, where you can use the taser is so high on the level of use of, uh, on the use of force uh, continuum and matrix. Like, I'm like, why am I even carrying this? What's the point, you know? It's interesting you say that, because I used to say it all the time, because the FBI did a study that the taser was only effective 49% of the time. So that's a flip of the coin to me. So it's not this magic tool, this magic potion that everyone was hoping it to be. There's right. so many factors that could that could change the dynamics and the ability of being effective. It could it could cause more damage. It could be effective. It, that's what the public doesn't understand. It's like anything else. A car, a car could be a fantastic tool for transportation. A car could also be a weapon too. Right. You know, it's funny how they utilize. I I think it's interesting. We have to look at these two different stories and weigh them in together, because the public. It's crying out now saying, how did the, those Los Angeles police officers use that taser that led to the death of Keenan Anderson? But yet, during, during the George Floyd riots, when two police officers were attacked in Atlanta parking lot at a Wendy's parking lot with a drunk driver, and one of the police officers' taser was removed, and he fired upon uh, the perpetrator, what do we hear from the public? That the taser was not a lethal device. How could he do that? So, and this is why I like to say, uh, and I want to quote John McCarry on this. He always says, it's the same game, but different rules. And he's right. It's the same game and different rules on who's watching. It's unfortunate, but I think that the police departments right. around America, they work for optics. Right. They don't work for policy. Yeah. And just to, to drive home the point there about Atlanta, that case in Atlanta, uh, only, I think, a couple weeks or a couple months earlier, the same DA had charged a cop with assault for using a taser. And That's then right. a couple weeks later, a couple months later, when a suspect actually like disarmed a police officer of his taser and attempted to use the taser on him, and that officer used deadly force, which was justified because once that taser hits you, if you got the full five seconds ride, you're done. Like anyone can take your gun from you or anything like that. So it was, and, and they, ruled, they ruled it was justified, but it's so interesting because a DA, yeah. Officer used uh, used the taser in an incident. They charge him with assault. Suspect uses it. Um, force is used against that suspect. It's it, you're right. Different rules. Uh, you know, uh, same game. Different rules. Like it's it's crazy. John, John and I talk about it all the time, and, and we both agree. You probably agree also. Anyone with experience knows. I hate the term when they say uh, this is a non-lethal device or less than lethal. And what does that mean? I mean any. And that's why we have to educate the public. If you're not compliant, you are putting yourself at risk. Because if you're resistant and you're fighting with a police officer, if we have to deploy a strike, obviously the ultimate goal is to get you in cuffs, but uh, deploying a strike could be deadly. Hitting someone with a baton could be deadly. Using pepper spray and the person turns and runs into a car, a car that's driving could be deadly. So I don't believe we should use the term less than lethal. All these devices are used appropriately according to the response that is elicited by the actions of a perpetrator. Right. That's why we have to educate our public. If you do not comply, you are putting yourself at risk. When someone goes to a haunted house on Halloween to have fun, and if they say, enter at your own risk, right? Well, that's the same thing. If you do not comply, your life is now put at your own risk. Why? A police officer does not have the medical records. We cannot stop and say, well, hold on a minute. 
He's got breathing issues. Let's not put any pressure on the chest. Hold on. He's got a bad knee. We can only tackle from the left knee. We, we don't got, have that. He's got who knows what drugs in his system, like things like we, that. Yeah. We don't know. The ultimate goal is to get someone in handcuffs. And I can tell you this, and you uh, you could probably say the same thing, Anthony. In almost 20 years of policing experience, I myself have never witnessed or been a part of someone being arrested that was compliant that there was force used against him or her. Right. Not once. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I, I have I have not seen it either. You uh, you know, it's 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 a shame um because it really cuts down, you know, personal responsibility completely out the window. No one talks about it. Um, everything is broken down into systems. There's no like taking it case by case. And I think your story is is just a uh, a microcosm of that where people the only thing people see when they read an article about you is oh he has over a hundred complaints and over fifty of them are substantiated. And so you can easily take that and say, oh well see it's a system. It's a system of racism or it's a system of uh, force problems or they're using too much force or they're heavy handed. But if you start like you have done and start breaking down those each specific cases and what the accusations were and what actually happened, you quickly start poking holes in this whole idea of, of a systemic problem that we keep getting, you know, just knocked over the head with in our, in our press. And I, so I think that's why it's important to have guys like you talk about it because a normal citizen We'll look at your story and be like, oh, that's a garbage cop. That's a dirty cop. That's a bad cop. But there's yes. so much more to these stories. Like, and and you know, even for myself, the the some of the complaints and lawsuits and um, you know, things that have happened in my career, uh, you look at my jacket and you'd be like, oh, you know, he he's kind of a bad cop. He's a dirty cop. Like he's done this, he's done that. What there's there's specific things to each one of those stories that I think need to come out. And for people to understand, I love that you say that because my fifty-eight tells a complete story. Because if you actually went through each case and you said, "Wait a minute, Lieutenant Dim and his team arrested this this perpetrator with an illegal firearm. Uh, he resisted arrest. He punched two police officers. He bit two police officers." Next case, oh wow, Lieutenant Dim and his team arrested these four gang members that were wanted for conspiracy for shooting two separate crews, and uh, they had to. Uh, get into an apartment to make these arrests after they fled on foot after a struggle. And all four of them have shot people in the past. And they're all out on bail. Next case. Oh, wow. Lieutenant Dim and his team arrested this perpetrator with an illegal firearm. He's wanted for shooting two separate people. Immediately when he encountered them, he started backing away. He said he's not going to jail. Lieutenant Dim and his team conducted this car stop that led to the... Uh, Retrieval of three illegal firearms inside that car. Lieutenant Tim threatened to make an arrest. Why? Because he was not met with any compliance. And this person has a rap sheet in the history of fighting, fighting with police officers. I have 30 separate actual complaints, different folders. I think 27 of them are in custody as we speak. I've never received a complaint from someone that was not under arrest. Not one. They were all arrest situations. Yeah. And I think that just points to the fact too that right now in our litigious society and the the culture, I mean these these guys that are engaged in criminal activity, they know that they can do certain things and make certain complaints in order to put a thumb on police officers and try to keep them from doing their job. That's what they want. These guys that are engaged in criminal activity, that's what they want. They want good cops to stop doing their job because they want to do whatever they want to do. 
And it's it's just such right. a shame. It's 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 such a shame. And just real quick, talking about the de-escalation part, I just wanted to ask you some like quick fire rapid questions here um, to to drive oh. home a point here. How many how many suspects, number of suspects do you think you've encountered who have resisted arrest, run, or fought with you? Oh, thousands. Thousands. <laughs> okay. And how many of those suspects have you shot? Let me ask that. Zero. Okay. And how many times in any of those incidents would have you legally been justified in firing around? Legally justified in deploying deadly force in any of those incidents? Uh, too many to count. In, in one particular case, I received the commendation. Myself and my teams, we had grabbed one particular perpetrator in possession of a legal firearm. I never forget the gun fell out of his hand. The gun was on the floor. We were fighting. Who, who, we were fighting to get our hands on the gun. He got his hand on the gun first. I had to deploy numerous strikes to get that gun out of his hand. I easily could have fired my uh, my gun. There was numerous times of fight with perpetrators. They got their hand on my gun. I never fired any rounds. Zero. Not one round in almost 20 years' experience of conducting special operations. Some of the worst neighborhoods in the entire country. I mean, I just want people to, to take that in. And it, this is the de-escalation that we never hear about. You know, there we only ever hear about lethal force when it's used and people don't like how it looks or the races of the people involved is different uh, between the officer and the bad guy. Um, but these types of things that, you know, especially our officers in urban environments are dealing with, de-escalation is used every single day, every single day, especially in these specialty units. And no one ever wants to talk about it. They just want you to use more de-escalation. I, I, I could say this, uh, never fight around. And uh, not one perpetrator has ever died in our custody. Right. And, and honestly, it's, it's really rare across the country for that to happen. Um, but, you know, be, it doesn't appear rare because our press likes to put all the stories up. Every time someone is, is uh, killed or meets their demise at the hands of a police officer, it's top story and it needs to be talked about. Um, but they, you know, like you said, thousands and thousands of suspects who you've been involved with, who've resisted arrest and you've never fired one shot, but you've been legally justified to do so on multiple occasions. I think that's such an important point to drive home to people to help them understand like what, what officers are dealing with on a regular basis. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I just think there's, there's a total, uh, misuse of the word de-escalation. It's a buzzword. I don't think these advocates really believe in it either. Because they never offer a solution. Right. They just say, let's de-escalate. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. I, I don't tell, know. I, tell me what that I mean, means. Yeah, I really think they believe it means dragging a, an incident out. And they believe that there's all this time in the world and we can talk people into things. Sometimes we have to move very fast to alleviate potential further issues. Uh, I don't think they completely understand de-escalation at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you made a good point about that earlier, that sometimes when you drag out these issues or you don't act quickly, that actually is not de-escalation. Like you're, you're actually making a, a bad situation worse. No, um, not only that, it, the, the more time that gets, uh, the more time sometimes that we allot, especially in Metropolis, like New York City, we now get more, uh, depending on time of day, let's say it's, it's, we're getting close to rush hour. We're getting more cars on the street. We're getting more pedestrians. We're getting more people hanging out the windows. So not only are we putting this potential perpetrator at risk, we're putting other people at risk also. 
and I, I don't know if you've ever heard me say it on the podcast, and I really believe this, and this is something we have to educate to our police officers, our cops out there. You're not dealing with one person. When you're in a rest situation, you're dealing with one incident. And that's why I say the ability to arrest one person could take 20 cops. It could mm -hmm. take 30. It could take two. Why it's one incident? And, I, and I've been to Lancaster City, but maybe you might have to, let's say you're going to arrest someone in, in, in that downtown area. You might have to shut down traffic at three different points. You might have to stop people from coming out of a building, right? Or coming out of a, a, an art location or a restaurant so that you put this person on the rest. It could take 15 officers. It could take three different cars that are up the block to arrest one person. So it's never one person. It's one incident. Yeah, man. I just think that's, that's a really, a really good point. There's so much going on at these incidents. You may, like you said, be arresting one suspect, but there are people all around you, especially in these urban areas, people all around you. Some of them are police friendly. Some of them are not. And then you have traffic and you have all these other things to, to uh, deal with and think about. Um, and, and we just, we just want to dumb it down into like this neat little, like, you know, Hey, the officer is the problem. And, and, turn it over to CCRB and, you know, uh, not really look at the whole picture of what's going on. I know this sounds kind of funny, but I think sometimes when the civilian complaint review board investigators and the public, when they look at a body camera footage, it's almost like when people had the argument when Christopher Columbus, uh, when Christopher Columbus, uh, you know, that you learned as a kid, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And right. the argument was, is the world flat or is the world round, right? And he was like, no, no, the world's round, right? And everybody said, oh, the world's flat. Well, it's the same thing when people look at body camera footage. I almost think that they look at it like the world is flat. No, the world is round. You're not seeing all the traffic, the crowds, the pedestrians, the people hanging out the window. You're just seeing this square that shows what happens on the surface. Right. And so, and, I, yeah, sorry, didn't mean okay. to cut you off. No, no, I, I just say that they don't see what police officers see. When you watch a body camera footage, you probably say, wow. You see that in the corner? You see what's going on with that person? And someone else can watch it with you. Try it. Watch it with your wife or someone. And they're like, I don't see that. I mean, sometimes right. I go out with my wife and we'll be in a restaurant. I'm like, hey, you see that? She's like, see what? I'm like, that guy with a knife in the pocket. She's like, I don't, we just, just eat. <laughs> no, I, you know what I'm saying? Right. Right. And the other thing, the body cam doesn't, it doesn't, you can't smell what officers on scene are smelling. Um, you can't, you can't uh, feel. You know, I, I, I have a couple body cam videos out there where I dump a guy, um, you know, and everyone's like, oh, my goodness, that like officer just like just threw that guy on the ground. Well, what they don't know is that I'm touching that suspect. I literally have hands on. I can feel his whole body tense. And I know what that means. It's a fight or flight response. And if I tell him, listen, man, relax or I'm going to dump you. Guess what? If you're not going to relax, I'll dump you. But you, the body cam doesn't show you that it, you can't. You can't feel with the body cam. I can't help the laugh. I'm not laughing at you because my guys used to make fun of me, but but then they would say it works. I used to teach them when you talk to somebody, you got you to put you got to put your hand in their heart. I used to always put the, my hand on people's heart. I would, hey buddy, how you doing? Because it, it would tell me a lot. Yeah. It, uh, it would be pumping or the body yeah. would be like, oh, yeah. here goes Lieutenant Dim again, touch his heart. <laughs> yeah, but but those are little things again. Like going back to that baseline, those, those are little things you learn throughout your career that you do uh, to help you, to help you kind of be ahead of the eight ball. Because as an officer, you're always responding to threats. You're kind of always in a reactionary mode, but you try to get as close as you can to being ahead of that eight ball. And those little things like that, like being able to see, you know, feel how fast the guy's heart's 
beating, feel how tense he is. Those things, they're huge. And no one wants to talk about it. They just want to demonize you when they watch a video and be like, ah, that was a little heavy handed. Well, yeah, okay. Just walk a mile in my shoes, you know, do the job as long as I've done it. Maybe, maybe you would see a different side of it. Right. But what, what do they, this is, this is my argument. John, I talk about this on the podcast and this is our argument. I'm open to, I'm always open to discussion and conversation. But what these people give you is they'll say, that's heavy-handed. That wasn't correct. No one has yet told you a solution. Has anyone ever said, hey, you did this. Why don't you do this? Mm -hmm. No one gives you solutions. They just tell you what's, what's wrong, what you shouldn't do, but no one gives you solutions. Why? Because they just don't know. They don't know themselves either. But let's just say, hey, none of it looks good. None of it looks good. I don't know what looks good. Again, I go back to the butterfly. It's going to be a caterpillar. Eventually, will turn into a butterfly. But that's what you're seeing. Yeah. And I think it's a really effective way whenever I... One thing I've learned is I've talked to people like that who you know have a problem with something they see on body cam or on the news or whatever. I just ask them, like, well, what do you think the officer should have done? <laughs> um, because it, it, caught, it, it, it causes that person to think, like, okay... I'm being critical of this police officer, but I don't know how to do the job. Like, what should he do? Like, what, you know, it just kind of like brings people back to earth a little bit and helps them understand like, oh, maybe this isn't as easy as I think it is in my own head. It happened to me even with my own mother. I remember I was talking to my mother. We were discussing the Eric Garner incident. Hmm. And at first, my mother didn't really know much about the police records. My own, she was like, oh, why did he have to do that? So I said, okay, mom, listen. What do you think he should have done? She goes, I don't know, just arrest him. I go, well, that's what he was trying to do. You know? Right. Yeah. So people just don't know. The yeah. problem is we have people that don't know weighing in on what they, uh, you know, giving their opinion on something they have no idea about. It goes back to the Dunning Kruger effect. Yeah. Everyone thinks that they, you know, even, you know, even jobs that people see and they're like, ah, that's an easy job. You probably, we've always heard people say, Certain jobs, go, ah, that's an easy job. Well, how do you know? Have you done it? Right. I don't think there's any easy job. Any job that requires you to get up, leave your house, go to that job, and answer someone and perform a task, it's not easy. Yeah. It's not. It's easy because you don't know it. Right. You don't know that person's job, right? Yeah. But probably I've heard people say, and I get I get upset when I hear people say, I think it's normal if you do any job. Or you know, someone working as a cashier, and you know, people go, oh, that's so slow. This person's an idiot. You know. Well, how do you know? Did you ever work as a cashier? Maybe that. Maybe you know what? There's probably so much going on with the actual equipment they have, running a line, dealing with their bosses, dealing with the whole environment. There's probably so much going on that you have no idea. I never was a cashier. I don't know, but right. I don't think it's an easy job. Yeah, yeah. I used to say that. I used to say that to my cops too. Like they would complain, like, "Ah, oh, that sergeant doesn't do anything," or "That lieutenant doesn't do anything." I'm like, "Do you know what their job is? Do you know what right. they do?" That's like right. Until until you know what they do, you might be right. But until you actually know what that officer does in their position, don't don't be saying that, you know they're not doing anything. Like it, it. it's funny you say that because I actually heard that about myself and my teams because people don't know what they don't know, right? So I've heard people, and, and I say that you know what, if you make it look easy, that means you're doing a good job. So I've heard other people in the past, but. Oh, come on. How hard is that job? They only have to go out and just find the guys without the guns. They don't have to go and answer calls. They don't have to do this to that. You know, because people love to compare. Right. And, and, you know, we divide and conquer. But, hey, yeah. I guess we made it look easy then. Yeah. 
it's yeah. just means you're doing a good job. But when you say, hey, what does that person do all day? They don't do anything. You don't know what they do. Right. You have no idea. Right. You know, we haven't yeah. walked in shoes yet. You know, I remember I wasn't administrative in my career, but I remember a, a few times, like uh, I, twice in my career, I had foot surgery. And during that time, I had to do stuff that was administrative. And I was young at the time on the job. And I remember thinking at that time, I thought it's probably easy. And I remember thinking, like, get me out of here. I can't wait to heal and get back in the street. I don't like this. This is a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Absolutely. It's not easy. Yeah. So you, you decided to retire early then. And I know one of the narratives out there against you is that you retired early to avoid, um, you know, getting any discipline or, or, or uh, you know, not, not retiring in good standing, that sort of thing. Can you talk to that at all and, and kind of put yeah. that to rest? I was not forced out of the job. It's, that's the dichotomy. Again, I was telling you, you're held to two courts of opinion. So the opinion of the review board was I was the most hated or, you know, they were overzealous. I was targeted. But as far as with the police department, every year you get evaluated, just like most jobs, an annual evaluation. And we had a score of one through five. And in order to get a five, you have to get a commanding officer's approval. Every year I received a five, which is the top you can get. So the job standards, I was doing well. I was getting awards. I was promoted to lieutenant special, uh, special assignment. Uh, and with that, during this time, obviously, I had to be, uh, I had to be slowed down and be put on the shelf the last year of my career because the amount of complaints from the civilian complaint review board, I just couldn't control them anymore, and I had to get off the street. So I was offered to, to be a commanding officer of a detective squad or an intelligence unit. So that would have been my next move within the, if I stayed on the police department. But this was my mission. This is what I wanted to do, to be out there with the men and women, you know, doing special operations, getting illegal firearms. I, my intention was, if I was going to stay on the job, to take all these civilian complaints that were substantiated to department administrative tr trial. But I was told at this time that I would have to wait two to three years because of the manpower, they only had three attorneys assigned to the uh, to uh, the Civilian Complaint Review Board. So the Civilian Complaint Review Board utilizes their own attorneys at the department trial to uh, uh, prosecute uh, uh, civilly for Article 78 against the cops. So I was not willing to wait that long. I didn't want to work in the intelligence unit. That was not what I... I couldn't be affected by men and women. So at that point, I felt I fulfilled my career. I said, you know what? There's going to be another path for me. And I made the decision to retire. And I settled those cases. And now I'm traveling. I'm doing the podcast. My message is to help the cops throughout the entire country that are out there right now to give them a voice. Because when you're on the job, right, you do have your First Amendment right, but you're working for an employer and there's just certain things you can't say. So we are the outside force to help those within. We can say the things that people can't. We are an advocate. I want to be a catalyst for change in the Civilian Complaint Review Board, also the disciplinary matrix. And I also stand behind John uh, in his fight and his will to stand against the forced mandates. Because his message, which I agree with, mm -hmm. is that if they go into force this mandate, there will be other forced mandates as well. And we're starting to see the tip of the spear. That he's right. And it's complete foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to me. Um, you know, it's just great. Uh, I feel like we scratched the surface on everything we wanted to talk about, but I think it just gives people a good idea like, hey, just because you read a newspaper article that says, hey, this cop got this many complaints, it doesn't mean that they're garbage cop. And I think your story really resonates with me, um, you know, for that reason, because, you know, what I know of you and and have heard from you and 
you know, have seen out of you is, is your, your articulate, your, your passion about leadership, your passion about the job. You were, you were always passionate about the job and you did good work. Um, Thank and you. it's a shame that, you know, you just got, uh, the CCRB coming after you like they did. Um, just want to give you the final word, Eric, uh, here at the, at the end of the episode, just the final word to, to talk about what you want to talk about and, and, uh, get off your chest. Final word, <laughs> Lieutenant Eric Dim. Well, absolutely. So towards the end of, end of my career, the, the tenure of my career, uh, the unions try to silence me. I said, listen, please, contact the networks, contact other police departments. I would like to get my voice out there to help other police officers that potentially could be facing the issues that I'm facing. And I was silenced. I was told, nah, don't worry about it. It's going to go away. So that was part of my decision to retire. I wanted to have an opportunity to be a voice out there to help others. Because I believe, I believe the best gratification is not by helping yourself. It's by helping others. And that's the gratification that I got. So here I am. I have the opportunity. John McCarry and I were at New York's Finest Retired Unfiltered Podcast. Uh, we do interviews. We also have a series on it called 265 Police Live, where we interview people. I'm sorry. Where we talk about police-related police events on a weekly basis uh, that have been going viral. We weigh in on our opinion. I want to be the catalyst for change. Uh, to people out there, if you're a police officer, you're a cop, and you're going through issues in the country, uh, maybe it's mental health or you're just feeling down about the job or you have something positive to say, please hit me up on Instagram uh, at Most Complaint Cop. Uh, I'm, I'm actually I'm honoring that name. I'm wearing it so that I'm identifiable. And it's more of a mockery because I was a good cop. I hate to toot my own horn, but I, I was a good cop and a good leader. And that's because I was surrounded by the best men and women. So I'm owning that because I want people to know that you can be labeled as, as that because and that's not what is exactly happening. So if you have an opportunity to speak to me uh, in person, call me, text me, reach me on Instagram, please, uh, and we could speak about things. I'd love to help you and give you advice in your career. And for those that are not police officers, if you'd like to contact us as well, we'd love to speak about things. And if you're looking into a future of law enforcement and you want some advice, uh, we're here for you. And anyone, if you've served in the military, currently are serving, or you did, thank you for your service. Uh, Anthony, thank you so much for this opportunity that I could speak to the people, cops or not cops. We're all in this together. We need to mend the relationship. We need to come together and we need to understand that our cops are important to our nation. We have to support them. We have to support them to be warriors. There's nothing wrong with being a warrior. We're getting away from that. Let's be warriors. Let's keep each other safe. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, America. Awesome. Thanks, Eric, so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It continues to be a great honor to do this podcast and have the chance to talk to some really great police officers, such as Lieutenant Eric Dim. I think his story is helpful in showing the pressures officers are under. That includes extreme pressure and danger from criminals, and then on the back end, under constant scrutiny and pressure from bad leaders and a public quick to judge without all the facts or context. In this case, it includes a Citizen Complaint Review Board in New York that seems more intent on going after cops for doing their jobs than actually seeking to understand the truth in these complex, high-stress interactions. I've heard Eric speak on many podcasts, including his own, and he does an excellent job articulating the intricacies of law enforcement and what it entails. Definitely recommend the podcast he does with retired NYPD Lieutenant John McCarry. If you recall, John was on an episode last season, uh, and he and Eric do 
a podcast together. Definitely recommend listening to it. It's called New York's Finest Retired and Unfiltered Podcast. You can find that podcast on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and I think pretty much anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can also follow Eric on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Just type in most complained cop, he'll pop up. Any good cop can relate to his story because any good cop has had frivolous and outright false complaints and lawsuits brought against them while in performance of their jobs. And I really appreciate Eric shedding a bright light on this issue and taking a stand for the men and women who do this job every day with character and integrity. If you're a fan of the Diakonos A Cops Calling podcast, you know what Cue the Dip is. If not, let me get you up to speed. Cue the Dip stands for kicking up the dust in pursuit. Diakonos is Greek for servant, and one of the root words for Diakonos refers to kicking up the dust in pursuit. Each of these episodes, I highlight the work of an officer who has kicked up the dust in pursuit of this calling, this profession. Philadelphia PD Officer Giovanni Masonette and Officer Macau Couch are this episode's Cue the Dip standouts. Here's the breakdown. February 8th, around 3.30 p.m., just a couple weeks ago, they conducted a traffic stop for tint, among other things. I don't know what that among other things means, but uh, tint was the reason for the stop. Sounds like there were three people inside this car. Officer Couch approached the driver's side and Officer Masonette approached the passenger side. The front seat passenger exited the car and turned away from Masonette as he approached that passenger side. Officer Masonette attempted to grab the passenger who was able to fire a gun through the pocket of his hooded sweatshirt, striking Officer Masonette at least two times. The suspect never displayed the weapon. He fired it through his sweatshirt pocket. Officer Masonette was shot in the stomach, which exited his back, and he was also shot in his bulletproof vest in the chest area. Officer Couch returned fire, but the suspect was able to flee the stop. Officer Couch then drove Officer Masonette to the hospital in critical condition, likely saving his life. Shortly after, two suspects were detained, and then the shooter was actually arrested the next day and charged with attempted murder, among many other charges. The suspected shooter was given $10 million bail, and I know I've been critical of D.A. Krasner in the past, uh, but on this podcast, on this particular episode, I want to give him props because for this bail because uh, it was an extremely good and high bail based on what this suspect has done, had done. And D.A. Krasner actually said, quote, we don't want him out, uh, which I thought was a really good thing for him to say as the top law enforcement official in Philadelphia. I wish he had this type of attitude to all the criminals he deals with. Listen, it's one thing for me to talk about these stories and try to describe them to you, but I want to play an absolute gut-wrenching radio transmission from Officer Masonette uh, after he was shot. You're going to hear him give critical information about the suspect description, and you're also going to hear him put a message out to his family over the radio. Keep in mind, when he does this, he is being driven to the hospital by his partner, Officer Couch. I originally heard this audio from retired Philadelphia PD Sergeant Mark Fusetti, whom I follow on Twitter. Take a listen to this radio transmission. Okay, like an anti-black hoodie on. A tattoo on the head. That's all I got. I think I'm shot twice. Tell my family I love them if I don't make it. I'm trying to get... We have any flash? So now, any officers go. 
What's wrong? What was that? Community rescue, uh, first thing's notified. What part of the body is he struck? I know he's part of the body, I'm happy to report that Officer Masonette is in stable condition and recovering as of the recording of this episode. When I heard this audio, I have to admit I cried. I have to think that many who hear it will also cry. One of the Philadelphia ADA's uh, assistant district attorneys at a press conference was nearly in tears herself when she was talking about this radio transmission. I cried for that officer and what he was navigating in that moment. I cried because I'm a husband and a father. I cried because I've had someone try to kill me and I know how that feels. I cried because officers every day are facing this level of danger on behalf of people who hate them. I cried because the stress of this type of horror possibly happening is felt by every family of every officer who serves. But I want to move past the emotion and point out several things. First of all, the only concrete reason we know that these officers conducted the stop was for tint. It sounds like there may have been more involved with it or that the officers were stopping for tint but were really suspicious about something else going on. We don't know for sure, but either way, the officers were conducting a good proactive policing stop using a minor violation. But right now, officers are being urged to stop doing their job when it comes to minor violations. In fact, in fact, there are several cities who are trying to outlaw any type of traffic violation stops, uh, especially if they don't involve movement. Like we're talking like things like inspection registrations, but there are there are. Uh, there are cities out there who are trying to keep the police from engaging in minor traffic violation stops. I've said it before and I'll say it again, the police rarely witness serious crime. Much of what they do is reactionary. You know, someone does a shooting, they get a call, they rarely witness a serious crime happening right in front of them. They have to be at the right place at the right time for that to happen. But the proactive side of policing lies normally in the mundane and minor. But those engaged in the mundane and minor crime are at times also the same ones engaged in the serious and violent crime. I mean, let's face it, if someone who decides to commit felony, felonies or carries a gun illegally, as was the case with this suspect, they likely don't care about traffic laws and they likely associate with those who don't care about traffic laws or, or minor laws. Throughout my career, I've used minor crimes and traffic violations to engage with people. It's what good cops do. It's not evil. It's not racist. It's police work. Breaking a law, whether minor or major, is a content of character thing. It's not personal and it's not racist. It's the job of the police. If I personally decide to go 75 miles per hour in a 55 and I get stopped, that's my fault. I decided to display a flaw in my character and thumb my nose at that particular law. If I get stopped by a black officer, it's not a racist thing. No, he observed a violation and he did his job. In the same way, those who thumb their nose at minor laws may also be the same ones who are thumbing their nose at major laws. Stopping and interacting is what a police officer is to do in that case. Nothing else matters in those moments except the need 
to enforce the law. So it was with these officers. They saw a minor violation. Maybe they had other suspicions or maybe they didn't, but it doesn't matter because they were enforcing a law, regardless of how minor it was, and it put them in contact with a dangerous criminal thug, which is their job. We need them to do that. Secondly, I want to point out the fact that this suspect never displayed the gun, actually firing it from inside the pocket of his hooded sweatshirt. I want to draw attention to this because a lot of times officers are crushed if they shoot too early in the opinion of the press and some people. No officer wants to shoot an unarmed person. But what do you do with someone displaying armed indicators but no weapon has been seen? A lot of times being legally justified to use deadly force as established by law, court cases, and policies is sooner than most officers are willing to use it. You even heard a story of that in this episode, multiple stories actually, with Eric sharing how he's engaged in multiple physical fights where suspects have attempted to grab his gun, or even a fight he had with a suspect who was armed and trying to retrieve their own gun. Now, we didn't get into the complexity of those cases, and for sure, I'm not second-guessing Eric or his officers, but, all those case, but in all those cases, deadly force would have been legally justified, and yet they didn't use it. Nearly every officer I've ever talked to can relate a story where they were seconds, if not milliseconds, away from using deadly force, and had they made that decision, would have legally been justified, but instead gave it another second or so, or tried something else that happened to work. So that's what I mean when I say many times deadly force may be justified, but each officer has their own line as to when they reach that point. In this case, we are upset because Officer Masonette got shot. But had he shot the suspect, believing the presence of a weapon, but not actually seen it, how would we feel about it? Well, in this case, probably okay, because hey, the suspect actually did have a weapon. But had the officer perceived the threat, believed that he or others were an imminent threat of serious bodily injury and or death, and shot the suspect, and the suspect did not have a weapon, we have a whole other story. And if that officer happens to be white and the suspect black, well, cue the outrage and cause a racism. During my career in Lancaster City, we had an officer shot by a suspect holding a gun behind a backpack and shooting through the backpack at the officer, or at least initially hiding the gun behind the backpack. Thankfully, our officer survived just as Officer Masonette did. But these are real-life scenarios that officers have to navigate in milliseconds and then get judged by people afterward who have the luxury of knowing all the facts, many of which the officer did not even know at the time. Some may say, yeah, but this is really rare. It happens a small percentage of time. These type of scenarios happen a small percentage of time to the police. True. But they do happen. And if an officer doesn't train for it or doesn't believe it will happen to him, he's playing Russian roulette with his life. An officer does not have the luxury of training with an, quote, if this happens mindset. They have to train with a, quote, when this happens mindset. When you train with a when this happens mindset, you run a better chance of surviving. This is the pressure officers operate under. No option is good. You're literally taking a chance with your life in this type of scenario or risk being fired and or criminally charged if you make the wrong decision. 
It used to be that officers felt it was better to be judged by 12 than carried by six. But now more and more officers quietly are believing it would be better to be carried by six than judged by 12. Why? Because that judgment actually doesn't come at the hands of 12 people in a jury, but at the hands of our press and our leaders at the highest levels. Lastly, I want to point out this, Officer Masonette's radio presence. Here is an officer under extreme duress, and he's providing valuable information about a suspect and where he shot, and he's doing it in a way that's understandable. He absolutely kills the ability to manage his emotions. When he provided that message to his family, I just wanted to express to him that, brother, you are going to make it. Listen, if I can express anything to officers out there based on this story, it's that you will make it. Have the mindset of survival. Understand, just as my old training sergeant used to say, if a suspect uses a gun or a knife against you, expect to get shot or stabbed. But that doesn't mean you're going to die. Eat the bullets. Take the cuts. Keep driving on. Survive. Have that mindset. If the good Lord calls you home, so be it. And I hope you're right with him if he does. But in that moment, if you are breathing, talking, and conscious, fight with all you got. Officer Masonette fought with all he had in this incident. His partner, Officer Couch, fought with all he had. I'm in no way second-guessing these officers with my observations that I'm making about this incident. I'm simply using this incident to try and point out what officers are dealing with and help you better understand what they're up against. Officer Masonette and Officer Couch were doing their jobs and under fire they performed and did what they had to do. Both of them are this episode's Cue the Dip standouts. As many of you know, one of my goals as the host of this podcast is to share truth. We are in a world and a culture that cause us to question everything. What is truth? Who's telling the truth? Every day we hear and see conflicting stories. Not only that, we see conflicting accounts of the same story. In a world where we seem to know so much, you would think truth would be more easily tangible. Even personally, I find myself questioning so much of what I see and read. But what is truth? Who is the author of truth? Who is truth? It's not what I think or feel, that's for sure. It's not what you think or feel, that's for sure. Truth cannot be relative to individual people, for if it was, then it would cease to be truth. Not all things can be true, for if they were, then all would be lies, for only one thing can be true. So I find myself compelled in all these episodes to share truth, not because I know it, but because I know the one who is truth. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Outside Christianity, there are many different religions in this world, but all of them worship a God who is dead. My God is alive. He is one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The creator of every person and everything. That's my God. And here in John 14, 6, we have the Son, Jesus Christ, saying that he is the truth. Every day when I'm pulverized by different opinions, different stories, different ideologies, different philosophies, I know the absolute truth lies in my creator and that there is a book I can go to, the Bible, the very word of God. In John 1.1, it says, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So why do I wake up in the morning, and very easily and quickly, I can open my social media, I can check Fox News, I can listen to my favorite pundits, and yet I struggle to open the very book of truth. A book of truth and a book of hope that tells the story of God's love for us and his patience with us. He is a God of justice, and yet even though we are in this mess of a world, he is slow to anger and he continues to extend patience to us. And we know this because he has given the gift of his son Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. In 1 Timothy 2, 3-6, it says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. The one true God supernaturally sent his son to this earth as a baby. Fully man and fully God, he lived a perfect life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And he did just that on the cross, dying as a sacrifice for our sins. But he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the dead. How do we know this? Well, one way we know this is because there is a God-inspired book that contains the actual witness accounts to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. After rising from the dead, he appeared to many witnesses before ascending into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God. And one day he will return to judge the living and the dead. He is the one true God. He is alive. And one day he will judge with perfect justice. If you believe in Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and confess your sin, worshiping him as Lord and believing the truth of his life, death, and resurrection, you will be saved. His name is the only one by which we can be saved and have eternal life with him in heaven. He is the truth. If you are troubled by the events around you, discouraged by this world, depressed by all the so-called knowledge at our fingertips, hopeless and in despair, can I urge you to open the book of truth and read about the God of truth? Opening the Bible and reading its truth reminds me of this song by Brooks and Dunn called Believe. The first verse says this, Old man Wrigley lived in that white house down the street where I grew up. My mama used to send me over with things. We struck a friendship up. I spent a few long summers out on his old porch swing, said he was in the war when in the Navy, lost his wife, lost his baby. Broke down and asked him one time, how do you keep from going crazy? He said, I'll see my wife and son in just a little while. I asked him what he meant. He looked at me and smiled, said, I raise my hands, bow my head. I'm finding more and more truth in the words written in red. They tell me that there's more to life than just what I can see. I believe. We all have to believe in something. For those of us who have had the blessing and the curse of serving in law enforcement, I know the level of pain and suffering the job can bring. This job takes and takes from everyone that does it. But if you're a cop looking at the bottom of a glass or looking to risky behavior off duty or looking to the next adrenaline dump or looking to another relationship, all to fight off the despair and hopelessness you're feeling, 
You are being lied to. There is truth. There is hope. There is salvation. His name is Jesus. Kick up the dust off that Bible cover and pursue the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus, the only one who saves. Jesus.